Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. Merry Christmas. So we're heading to the holidays here. Uh, these are your DC books for the week of December 12th, 2023. I don't know how we're going to keep this short. Uh, DC's got like nearly 20 books out this week. It's uh, it's a problem. Some of them, you know, granted, we've got a, a reprint of, um, of Birds of Prey. We've got a, a, a black and white version of the Batman Joker Deadly Duo, so you can see Mark Sylvester's gorgeous art uncolored. So that's amazing. Um, I think there was one other one that was a, a reprint as well. Oh, well, uh, well um, Batman Gargoyle of Gotham has a black and white edition and a regular edition as well. So you add all that up and it's like 20 books. But even if you take away the ones that we're not going to cover in detail here because they're black and white reprints or the re, you know reprints of the first couple issues of Birds of Prey or what have you, that still leaves you with 17 books. Um, I, I just have to say, like, you know, I, I, I get that part of it's because some of these books are late. Okay, so again, they shouldn't be late. Don't schedule series, you know, four issue series takes a year to come out. No. Don't schedule it till all four issues are done if that's what you have to do. But then you t you know take your whole slate and then you divide it up so all the weeks are even. You know we have some weeks you know six seven books that's fine. Uh, but when you have seventeen books, I'm sorry, it's just too many. It's just too many books to have coming out. The shelves are already crowded. Uh, you know I'm not going to say none of these books, none of these stories deserve to be told or what have you. But man, you're it's a big burden on somebody who's you know, especially around the holidays, you're having to spend money on gifts and what have you. And then you got 17 books coming out and I get it, right? Like this is for pleasure. You don't have to buy anything, but I just think 17 books in one week is just too many. However, however you slice it. And I get it. It's hard to schedule. You schedule out your whole year and you have all the weeks the same and then things happen. Um, I, I get that. But you know, the, the reprint of, of Batman 428, right. Is uh, I think is a perfect example uh, that's the book where Robin died, right? Jason Todd died back in the day. And for the first time ever, they're reprinting it. But the version where, and it was, this was like less than 10 votes. I think it was five votes that Todd died. You called the one, one 900 number way back in the day in the late eighties, early nineties. That used to be a thing. Um, but it's a perfect example, right? There's absolutely no reason to be putting this book out this week when there's 20 other books. Just don't, just don't put it out. Just wait. Wait a week or two when there's a shorter week, lighter week. If you have to wait till January, so be it. But why? Why do? Why pick this week when there's so many other books? It's not. It's not a good look, DC. You just look greedy. Uh, so anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. I, I can't even venture to say. You know, usually we start off. Hey, it was a good week. It was a bad week. There's so many books. I can't. I can't even tell you. I have no idea. Uh, my mind is just overflowing with all these stories. I'm trying to keep straight. So anyway. Anything to add, Rocky, uh, other than, God, there's just too many goddamn books? Uh, yeah, it, it's too it's too bad. I, I share your sentiment. And now, admittedly, you and I read – well, we try to read them all. I didn't read them all. I couldn't read them all. It was just too many. And uh, and it didn't help that most of them weren't very good, uh, in my opinion. Uh, and because there were too many, it does contribute to my mood. That's why I have the Scrooge up here because I might be a little bit Scrooge-like. Both of us might be a little uh, uh, bah humbug this week. Um, there's, uh, uh, quite a few disappointments this week, I thought, and which really makes the glut of comics from DC this week, all the more frustrating, uh, which, uh, I was really hoping that they would maybe come out 
I think next week might be a little bit better, but uh, in any event, let's get to it. We got a lot to read and uh, a lot to talk about. <laughs> yeah, and I'm gonna, yeah, we're gonna try to, yeah, we'll try to keep it short and sweet because there's so many. We'll maybe not get into quite as much detail, but we'll kick it off with Green Lantern number five from one of our favorite writers, Jeremy Adams. We have art here by Zermanico and Scott Godlewski does the last few pages. Colors by Ramulo Fardo Jr. Letters by Dave Sharp. Pretty interesting what's going on. We saw at the end of last issue, Sinestro was so angry about Hal Jordan foiling his plans and so angry about being stuck on Earth and not being able to get back to Krorogar. He was able to manifest a Red Lantern ring, and there's an epic fight between him and Hal Jordan here. We know there's something going on with the emotional spectrum. Hal senses it. Uh, Sinestro would sense it as well if he wasn't so, you know, wrapped up. Um in you know his own stuff he's able to use his red lantern ring and actually leave the earth whereas when hal starts to get too far away from earth uh his powers seem to fade so yeah there's there's not only something going on with the emotional spectrum but there's something going on with these different rings it's not clear why sinestro is able to manifest his own red lantern ring and leave earth whereas hal has manifested his own willpower ring and it's he's not able to leave earth maybe it's something subconscious maybe not um, but absolutely fantastic story. All these hints of, of things to come. There's a Green Lantern event, I think, coming next year as well that's kind of leading into all this, um, or this is leading into that, I should say. So I, I was really impressed. This is one of the better books of the week, especially the Zermanico art. Um, there's one particular page. It's a double-page spread um, where... Sinestro is attacking a couple of jet planes, uh, and then Hal has to has to save the pilots. He's unable to save the planes themselves, but he has to save the pilots. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, love the art. Love what's going on here. The only thing I would say, uh, if I have one little nitpick, is that uh, the the issues are. I feel like I, I'm not getting a big enough chunk of story, uh, and that's partly because Jeremy Adams is smart enough to know. Hey, I need to give Zermanico's art room to breathe, right? Um, I think a lot of the artists that he worked with on Flash, um, their art maybe wasn't quite as, as detailed. So we didn't have as many big panels, double page spreads, that sort of thing. So we got more panels per page, which felt like more story per issue. With this one, and also I'll blame the fact that he lost too much to Night Terrors. God, it... I just want the story is so good. I want it quicker. I want it faster. Uh, but again, that's a, that's a minor nitpick. It's a, it's actually a compliment to, uh, to Jeremy and Zermanico uh, that I can't wait for more of the story. It's absolutely uh, amazing. There's a backup as well. I'll talk about in a second, but I'll give Rocky a chance to give us his thoughts on the main, uh, the main story because seeing how Jordan manifests a giant, uh, like Pacific Rim robot to fight this kaiju-like monster that um, Sinestro created was was just awesome, just awesome. The fight, uh, tons of action in this uh, in this issue, and it was amazing. What yeah. do you think? Yeah, this Zermanico art is really fantastic. This is one long giant fight scene. Narratively, plot-wise, we didn't really get a lot of progression, but then uh, th this was a fun issue. This was. Um, this is, uh, you know, the last time I have another artist that is able to pull me in and just and read a, a full 
uh, a full issue of just a, of, a, of a glorified fight scene with a minimal amount of plot development is actually uh, Daniel Warren Johnson, which he's currently doing over in Transformers. This reminds me a little bit, I read Transformers issue four this week uh, from Image Comics, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And Examanico's uh, art is, is, is manages to pull in, he's really good at uh, crafting and, and artistically choreographing fight scenes as well, and does a stellar job here between Sinestro and, uh, and Hal Jordan. Uh, the, the mystery still remains how Sinestro can manifest a red lantern ring of all things and what exactly is going on. Uh, there's also a revelation with that uh, uh, that uh, Calabac is actually dead and that uh, this the Calabac... Kill, that, kill uh, pardon me, sorry. <laughs> That's correct. Thank you for the correction. <laughs> it's not Darkseid's mini, I know. It's... Uh, it's uh yeah, Kilowog is actually uh, he's actually dead, and he's Hal Jordan's been talking to a construct all this time while he's living in his trailer. So there's a, there's a lot to be revealed here, and um, the mo the most significant aspects of the story have yet to be revealed. So uh, Jeremy Adams is keeping a lot a lot of that uh, you know under the chest, so to speak, and we're probably not going to get more of that in, until the new year. But we have something to look forward in the new year, and I would be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to the a fantastic. Um, a variant cover. Again, I usually bitch about variant covers, but every now and then I'm compelled to ignore and, and be a little bit hypocritical and say that this is an awesome variant cover with Santa Claus, you know, wearing all the all the Christmas ornamental power rings on his finger in that classic uh, in that classic pose. I really love it. It's behind me for those watching on YouTube, and uh, it's probably a one in twenty-five variant for all I know, or one in fifty. But it is—it is a pretty cool-looking variant. Santa Claus himself wielding the Christmas spirit power through all the uh, Christmas ornamental power rings. So I thought it was pretty good. So, uh, yeah, uh, those of us who have been with J Jeremy Adams from the beginning of his Green Lantern arc, we're still with him. It's still entertaining as hell. Little slow progression on the plot, but I—I've got no problem with that. I've been enjoying the story, and the art makes it all well worth it. Yeah, as far as I can tell, there's a Tyler Kirkham 1 in 25 stock cover and a 1 in 50 Michael Walsh stock cover. But the, uh, yeah, the green, the Santa one looks like it's open order. So, okay. yeah, it looks it looks pretty cool for sure. Yeah. Uh, okay, up next we have Batman and Robin issue number four. Uh, you don't want to talk about the backup? Oh, oh, that's right. I do want to talk about the backup. I, I mentioned it and <laughs> then I forgot. Uh and now I, I now I lost it. There we go. Uh, yeah. So the backup, uh, Wayward Son Part Three, Peter J. Tomasi story, uh, David LaFuente on uh, is the artist, Tamara Bonville on colors, Rob Lee on letters. Uh, so it's interesting. We know we're going to get a, a Sinister Sons, I think it's called, series starring um, this kid who purports to be uh, Sinestro's son, along with the son of um, of General Zod, which we get a chance to see him, uh, Lore show up uh, in one of the stories in Action Comics. Um, I think it's Action Comics. Uh, one of the books, anyway. God, yeah. see, that's what happens when there's so many books. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we, we think that, that uh, or we know that that is the, the, the team up that we're going to get. Um, and we're starting to see in this particular issue how he's going to get off the, the, the planet that he's been stuck on, where his mother supposedly uh, ab abandoned him. Uh, it still isn't 100% clear that he is the son of Sinestro. He certainly believes that he, he is, but whether he is or not, um, it hasn't been revealed yet. And I imagine they'll probably keep that as a mystery for uh, a little bit longer. Um, but, you know, I guess I guess we'll see. And, and the other thing that's interesting is, will he get a different name, right? So the, 
the kind of the villain he works for, if if you will, um, you know, the guy who sort of runs the street urchins in the the ghetto that he lives in is named Nagoff. And he calls him Korg. He calls the, the little kid Korg because, you know, he's abandoned there as a baby, doesn't even have a name. So he calls him Korg because um, he can tell he's from Korgar. Um, so, you know, will he have a name? Will he give himself another name? Will he continue to go by Korg? And and really the, the big question is, is he truly Sinestro's son? Uh, I imagine that's one of those mysteries where DC's going to milk that for a long, long, long time. And even if some writer comes along and tells a story that definitively says that, yes, it's Sinestro's son, it's only a matter of time until another writer comes in and writes a story where, no, he's not really Sinestro's son. So it's probably going to be one of those situations where we'll never really uh, know. Um, the one thing about the story, and I've mentioned it before, La Fuente's art is sort of an all ages, kind of a younger feel. Um, and so, you know, I don't know if that's the audience they're going for, if they're trying to go for that Super Sons audience or not. If so, this style suits it. If not, then, you know, maybe you want a style that's a, a bit more mature. But I, I think it works for the story that's being told. But I, I would be curious to see what Korg looks like under the art of, of somebody else from a different art style. But I don't know that we're going to get that because La Fuente is doing the art in the, the Sinister Sons story as well. So um, we'll see. Be I, I just have a feeling because you and I talk about this all the time. When somebody's supposed to be a little kid and they're drawn like a little kid here, but then in the hands of another artist, they draw them and they might look like they're 20. So, you know, the age of characters can be problematic at times. You know, Damian Wayne is a perfect example. You look at the way, you know, one person draws him, he looks 11. Another person draws him, he looks like he's 16. Um, yeah. There is a difference. Uh, but I know it's challenging sometimes uh, for some artists to draw younger characters. But overall, I'm enjoying this. Um it has me looking forward to Sinister Sons a, a little bit, but at the same time, that's going to star two characters that really aren't very likable, uh, especially when it comes to lore. He's very abrasive. So hopefully that doesn't prevent that from being a an enjoyable series, right? Where you just read it and you're like, man, I don't like either of these characters. I have no one to root for. I don't really want to read it. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, anyway, what are your thoughts on the, uh, on the backup? Yeah, I, I actually share your sentiment. I, I've got mixed feelings about the art. And it's going to be interesting to see what artistic style they want to use when they do the Sinister Sons. I, I would prefer, and this is my bias because maybe we're older readers, I, I would like a more mature style of art. And I would like, uh, I actually, I, I don't want a Super Sons feel to it. I, I personally would prefer a, a little bit more of darker humor, darker a darker turn, because it is Sinister Sons after all. It's not Super Sons, and I hope they're not trying to imitate Super Sons. Otherwise, frankly, it defeats the purpose in my mind, uh, because they're... They're, they're, they, these are juvenile, glorified galactic juvenile delinquents, and they ought to be portrayed that way. And they shouldn't be particularly have they shouldn't have a particularly strong moral code. They should have the opposite, and uh, because they're they're bad guys. And I'm not I'm, I'm getting less and less. Uh, uh, I find less and less appealing this idea that we got to change all the bad guys and give them antihero status. No. Sometimes if they're an asshole, portray them like assholes. Uh, let, 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 them, let them embrace their inner villainy. That's what I would like to see. And I think it would actually be more villainous. Take a more, uh, take a, like I look at the boys on TV, the success of the boys and, and Generation V on TV. You know, it's okay to go dark uh, with some dark humor, but I don't, I don't know if I can see DC doing that. Uh, but boy, I would sure love to see it. But uh, overall, it's not bad. But again, mixed feelings on the art. I share your sentiment on that. 
Yeah, all right. Speaking of art, let's uh, move on to Batman and Robin, issue number four. Joshua Williamson is the writer. Mikel Yanin, along with Simone DeMeo, are the artists on this particular issue. Jeremy Cox and Ramudolo Fajardo Jr. on colors. Steve Wands on letters. Really interesting. I, I, I found myself... <laughs> the art style that Mikel Yanin uses here, like I couldn't look at particular pages and go, oh yeah, that's that's Mikel Yanin. I looked at some of the Simone DeMeo pages, and I can tell it's DeMeo just based on you know, the style, but it was a little cleaner and wasn't quite so ethereal when, uh, uh, for the pages I could, I knew for sure, like, okay, this is Simone. The majority of this is a Simone DeMeo page, but it, it, it was, felt a little more solidified. Like it didn't feel so digitally painted. The lines felt more solid and what have you. And then when I looked at pages where it's clear, Mikel Yanin's doing the heavy lifting, it didn't look like necessarily, uh, what I expect from Mikhail Yanin in general, right? Like it had a little more ethereal feel. So I think that Jeremy Cox and Romulo Fajardo Jr. on the colors probably got together and said, hey, let's make Simone DeMeo's art style look a little more like uh, Mikhail Yanin's art style and vice versa. And so what it does is you it's not so jarring, right? Because when you think about it, if, if this was straight – you know, Mikel Yanin style, how it normally looks, and straight Simone DeMeo style, how it has looked in this series so far, that would be very jarring. So I want to give a lot of credit to whomever it was, and it might maybe that Simone and, um, you know, Mikel did some things as well themselves to kind of meld their art, art styles uh, together a little better so they don't look so disparate. All that to say it's a pretty good job. Um, are the art styles different? Can you tell who worked on a page more so than the other? Yes, you can. But I, it didn't pull me out of the story. And I, ha- I had when I went back, when I got to the end of the story, I was like, well, hold on a second. This doesn't look like Simone DeMeo's art. And then I went back and flipped back through, and I'm like, oh, wait. Yeah, the, the art style does sort of change throughout the story. But it was so subtle, I didn't really notice it. Then I went and looked at the credits again and realized, oh, I didn't even realize I, I read the credits, but didn't put two and two together that Mikhail Yanin was doing the art style. Uh, so all that to say, one of the things I've struggled with on this book is the art style. Uh, it's made it where I haven't, I've, I've felt like this barrier to entry to, to be pulled into the story. This is my favorite issue so far because of the change in art style. It felt a little more solid. I felt uh, I didn't have to quite struggle so much um, to, be pulled into the visual storytelling. And again, this, you know, totally my preference, totally subjective. Other people's, um, you know, experience may have been different, but this one for me, this issue for me felt a lot better. I I understood better what was going on. Uh, I just thought it was really interesting with what we had going on, going all the way back to Damien's past um, and finding uh, out about one of the, uh, one of his early trainers that kind of had a falling out with Talia and a falling out with Damien. Uh, that was interesting. Another thing that it made me realize is, so that's usually what happens to characters when they've been around for a while, right? Like I've talked about it a lot, how I don't necessarily care for retcons, re- retroactive continuity, where you go back and you change something about the history of a character. And usually it has to be a character that's been around re- a really long time to where somebody will go back and change something about their origin and say, oh, it didn't happen this way, it happened that way. Or they'll just go back and add something, right? It's not as bad when they just go back and add something. Uh, it can be problematic at times. Like the example I always give is to say Batman's the world's greatest detective, 
But yet Scott Snyder goes back and adds the concept of the, the Court of Owls. And don't get me wrong. I love the Court of Owls. I love Talons. Uh, I love the whole concept of it. But it diminishes Batman in some way, right, to say this secret clandestine uh, organization or group has been operating under his nose since Gotham City began. So since before Bruce Wayne was born. Um, and he operated all this time as Batman and didn't know what was going on. Like that diminishes him, right? Uh, he was He's supposed to be the world's greatest detective. He didn't know it was even happening. When you do things like that, just based on who Batman is and, and who the Court of Owls are, it can be problematic for me. It doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't logically make sense. When you're going back and you're talking about people who trained Damian Wayne, I have less of a problem, right? Because I'm assuming he got trained by a ton of people, and we haven't heard about all of them yet, even now. So I'm, I'm more okay with that. But it was a little reminder, hey, Damian's been around for quite a while now. We've got people going back and adding things to uh, his origin. He's certainly by no means a new character anymore. So that was kind of interesting, and I'm curious to see where it goes next because, as it turns out, at the end, when Bruce takes him back to uh, school, to high school, where he doesn't want to be, he kind of changes his mind because he thinks that his principal is that uh, trainer that he had that had a falling out. Uh, She wasn't killed as was – kind of hinted at at the beginning or, or in the flashback. Uh, and she's actually there at his school and now he wants to investigate and he tells Bruce in the last page, Hey, I guess I have a good reason to go to this school after all. So it's interesting. We'll see where it goes. Um, and of course it's always great to see white rabbit when she's drawn super sexy by, uh, by both artists. So, uh, yeah, my favorite, by far without question, my favorite issue of the series so far. what do you think? Uh, well, straight up, I stopped collecting this at issue three. Uh, and uh, because I, I didn't like the art and because I just the, the indie market's so great. And it's the story just I wasn't wasn't quite there. And uh, now the art, I got to say, the art is fantastic. It's way better. I st- I, the Simon, Simon, uh, the Simone de Mayo pages, I can still tell it's his art. I'm not a fan of it. And it does sort of take me out of the story. And it got a little just uh, I wasn't a fan of it. And it was enough that I stopped buying the physical copies. Uh, now I'm, in te- I'm tempted to put it back on my list because the art is substantially better on those pages. Spe- those the flashback sequences, and like you said, if that's a combination of Janin and Demayo's style, uh, it's way better to me. Just way, it's to me, it's like night and day. It's more of a DC house style, way better. This Mistress Harsh, <laughs> I love her. The fact that Damien has some pretty kick-ass, gorgeous little uh, female teachers back in the day that uh, were under the rule and thumb of his mother Talia, and you know, Mistress Harsh was, you know, she was punished for daring to lay a hand on Damien. I don't know how you're supposed to teach a kid martial arts and not uh, not maybe, you know, give him a slap once in a while, but that's that's what happens when you work for Talia Gall and you're training her young son to be an assassin. Uh, but it was cool and it, it is I th- I thought it was hilarious because uh, for the for the first three issues, you know, Damien trying to get Damien to go back to school, but Damien doesn't want to, doesn't want to because he wants to help he wants to find Shush and he wants to find the man bad guy and he wants to he wants to help Bruce, you know, he wants to help his father catch the bad guys, so to speak. And then all of a sudden at the end, I mean, Damien gets one up on 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 Bruce by saying, Oh, guess what? I think my teacher <laughs> I think my teacher is the one we're looking for. I mean, I thought that was kind of cool. And suddenly he wants to go to school again. That was pretty cool. Uh, I agree with you. This is the best issue uh, so far. I, I did like the first issue, though, story-wise, but I, I really like this, and, and I like the way this works. And it's amazing how much better this storyline feels now that Gotham was over, because Gotham was always in the back of my head and tainting it. Uh, but I, I, I like this much more, and hat damn, Williamson, 
I got to now I got to put the thing maybe back on my pull list my, for physical copies. But yeah, I, I, I enjoyed this issue. It was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Outsiders, issue number two, Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly on the script, Robert Carey on art, uh, Valentino Tedeo on colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. Uh, pretty fun story here. We've got Drummer, which I just I just love that name that they came up with for this uh, member of the Outsiders. We've got uh, Luke Fox. I almost said Luke Cage. Luke Fox, or DC, not Marvel. And then, of course, Kate Kane, Batwoman. And... They go to explore uh, an area of the sea called the Enlil Triangle, where there's a storm that's been raging um, for over 25 years, um, 23 years, what have you. And when they get there, they find the challengers of the unknown are, are there as well, and the challengers of the unknown don't want them there. Um, they explore it anyway. They find a little baby monster, which is a combination between uh, – it's a sea monster, it's, but it's a combination of, of – a shark, a crab, and like a giant octopus. And it looks amazing. All credit to Robert Carey um, for uh, a, a, an amazing design. And what they come to learn, the um, there's actually a graveyard. There's this, this giant sea monster is actually a baby. Uh, and they end up sparing its life. Uh, and it's really uh, interesting. Even the Challenger of the Unknown, who are there to sort of clean things up and kill monsters and do whatever, agree to let it be because it's, you know, way down at the bottom of the ocean where it's not going to hurt anybody. Uh, so all in all, it was a fun story. The one thing that didn't make a ton of sense for me though, like the, the challenges of the unknown are, are just such jerks um, to the point, like th they are going to strand the outsiders on the bottom of the ocean. Don't care if they live or die. It, it just, I found the, the portrayal of the challenges of the unknown to be, I don't know, a little out of character for what I know the challenges, of the uh, challenges of the unknown to be, so that at times that took me out of the story a little bit, like it didn't make a lot of sense, um, and it, it made for a little bit of a choppy narrative uh, at times because it, they just they were so over the top whenever they uh, whenever they kind of came on the page, um, and it was almost like almost to the point of not being believable. Um, but it's a minor nitpick. Overall, it's just a fun like fun story, and again the character design for that monster that monster design is just amazing um so i can forgive a lot because that was a fun concept and that again that monster was absolutely amazing looking uh being a combination of a, a shark a crab and a giant octopus so uh where this goes from here i guess we'll see so far with um with two issues in it almost feels like x files with a comic you know like you're gonna have whatever weird thing you're after for that one particular episode and that's going to jump to another there hasn't been a whole lot of continuity between issues yet um they feel very self-contained which is not necessarily a bad thing i'm kind of curious to see if that feeling will continue or if it'll start to feel a little more serialized uh but all in all yeah fun issue and absolutely amazing sea monster what do you think uh, i was uh you know, if, if if I wasn't familiar with Planetary already, I would say this was good. But because it's it's comparison to Planetary, I'm disappointed. Uh, Planetary would have had uh, – Planetary started off right away with a self-contained story that had implications moving forward. It was much more clear, more interesting. This just had to do with me with the, with the glorified monster at the bottom of the sea. Challenges of the unknown. I don't know why they're even in the comic. Uh, they all come across like jerks to me. 
Uh, they, we learned nothing about them. They could have been anybody. Uh, we weren't told much about them. And what we were was all in riddles. Uh, having successfully opened Pandora's box and following the subsequent mysterious death of their client, the challenges of the unknown are awarded a lucrative pent Pentagon contract to eliminate the worldwide genie menace. What, what the hell are they talking about? It's nothing's explained. It's uh, I just thought it was I, I just thought it, it could have been so much better. Was it OK? Sure. But, you know, this idea that, you know, Batwoman of all things has some instinct to save some some creature that lost its parents at the bottom of the ocean. Um, this if, if uh, again, I'm, I'm drawing I'm being it might sound like I'm being harsh, but I the, the planetary concept is is focusing on things that are really obscure and remote and. And this, while this is touching upon that in an archaeological, a little bit of an archaeological sense, it's not near as interesting as it could be. And for a second issue, I thought this was a, I thought this was a very poor choice. Of uh, this should have been maybe, uh, I was just disappointed with it. I, I hope it gets more interesting and more fun. And I hope that you know what what plot elements from this issue would be linked to future issues because uh, I want this. This is a very very. What does this have to do with the bleed? What does this have to do with the multiverse? What does this have to do? archaeological like, I mean I, I'm looking for something deeper and admittedly I am comparing it to one of the greatest stories of all time uh, greatest uh, 24 issues of all time planetary but uh, so it's not bad I'm I'm glad this is I gotta say Batwoman's more interesting here than she has been in every any other iteration I like Batwing I like Batwoman I like Drummer so I like where this is going this is still more interesting to me than half the DC comics right now straight up uh, and I'm but I uh, I say this as an underhanded compliment. I want to I want to push the, the the subject matter of these narratives that much higher because there's so much cool potential with this concept. And so I say that as a compliment to Jackson Lansing and Colin Ke uh, Kelly. And I I like Robert Robert Carey's art. It's uh, uh, again it it's better than the first issue anyway. And I hope it continues to improve. Yeah, I think part of the 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 thing here is that Lansing and um, and Kelly, are, they're mining from past stuff, right? What, what's the most recent iteration? What's the most recent book, Challenges of the Unknown, have you know showed up in? You know, they were in the the metal event. They had their uh, whatever imprint that was that Dan Didio did um, that kind of came and went real real quick. It's supposed to be Marvel style, <laughs> the one that gave us um, that uh, damage that that different damage character from uh, from Robert Venditti. And Aaron Lepresti, Tony Daniel worked on that book as well. There was a Brimstone title. There was Sideways from Didio himself. There was a Challenge of the Unknown book. It was supposed to be Scott Snyder. And then Snyder barely had anything to do with it. And it's that version. And that's where some of the uh, Challenges of the Unknown, the original members, were killed. That's mentioned here. So, But you, we're going back five years here to mine continuity. And I'm sure those guys read all that. Uh, and you're going to get more out of it if you can tie all those pieces together with where the challenges have showed up here or there since then um, in the dark crisis event, in the, the uh, death metal event. And if you don't remember that stuff, because, and honestly, you, I completely know why you don't, because a lot of that stuff was really forgettable. Then you miss out on some of the context. Um, and you, yeah, there's only so much space in the book, uh, which is why, again, it felt a, a little bit choppy. So. Uh, I, I'm not, I'm trying to completely separate it from planetary and not comparing it. And I think that's why I'm, that's the way to do it. If you want to enjoy it, cause you're right. Nothing's going to live up to planetary. It's one of the greatest runs and comic series of all time, as you said. So, uh, anyway, let's move on. We've got Batman, Santa Claus, a silent night issue two written by Jeff Parker, 
art by um, Michelle Bandini and Trevor Hairsign. Colors by Alex Sinclair, lettered by Pat Brosso. Again, this is a, a four-issue series coming out every uh, first four weeks, I should say, in December. Um, the art is fantastic, especially the um, Michelle Bandini art. The hair sign art here is in, is uh, when they do the flashbacks that kind of explains how Santa Claus and the, the Krampus were working together. I love that Jeff Parker's taking these myths uh, because at the end of the day, Santa Claus is a myth. A lot of people don't think of him that way because a lot of times when you think of myths, you do think of like monsters like the Krampus, right? So you're taking this idea of um, these two myths and, and merging them together. And, and there, there have been different stories over the years that have postulated that Krampus and Santa Claus would work together. Krampus to scare the kids into behaving and Santa Claus, Santa Claus to reward them uh, when they do behave. And that's sort of what's going on here. Um, but not exactly. Parker does give it a little bit of a twist. Um, so it's a lot of fun. It definitely, you know, suits the tone of the season being around the holidays and uh, the Michelle Bandini art is absolutely gorgeous. And uh, yeah, um, there's not really much more to say. This is again, just a lot of fun lighthearted, um, out of continuity in terms of you don't need to be reading any other DC comics or know any of the events that have gone on to be able to, you know, buy these four issues this month, share them with your kids, read them as bedtime stories or what have you. Um, my favorite scene in the whole book is at the end when Superman shows up um, and Batman says, oh, it's him. I knew he'd hear about this. And Superman lands and, you know, he's like, hey, I'm going to help you out. What's going on? What, you know, what's he going to say? Instead, he says, you didn't tell me that you knew Santa. Uh, <laughs> you know, seems like he's a little he's in, he's in his feels like Batman. You didn't tell me you knew Santa. So I'm sure we're going to get a Santa Claus story. Uh, from Superman next issue. We'll see how that goes. Uh, so what were your thoughts on it, Rocky? Well, what I really like about what, what DC has done here is how many times, and, and most of the time we get like by the number uh, Christmas anthologies, holiday anthologies from DC. And in fact, we, we, they, they released one towards the night before Christmas. We're going to be reviewing that as well. But this one is actually... Uh, kudos to DC for actually weaving a story. Jeff Parker, writer, uh, weaving a story that actually weaves into actual DC continuity in a in a crazy believable kind of way possessing some degree of verisimilitude given the DC universe we get black canary here we get green arrow we get Damien we get the bat family we get superman you know it's <clears throat> i've not uh you know I, I don't know about future issues but we might get a, a who's who of the DC universe all coming to meet santa claus or this <laughs> this claus character and this Kr krampus who actually has a very believable origin. The idea that Santa and his Krampus work together uh, with, with the goal of, of helping kids become the best version of themselves with a combination of fear and a little bit of reward. There might be some controversy there in terms of how, how to scare kids and to be good. But it, it, it has, a, has a ring of kind of uh, interesting truth to it. And, you know, all of our fairy tales, whether it's Santa Claus or anything else, they, there's a darker element to that. And I think it's handled here by Jeff Parker and scripted in a, in a very good way. And Santa Claus looks really cool. He looks like a cool-looking, super-heroic Santa Claus. He doesn't got the pot belly. He's got a great build. And you got this Krampus, sort of this, sort of like the glorified, you know, he's definitely more of a devious-looking Grinch creature. And it's it's an interesting how he's merged, though. He created his own mythology here within the context of the DC Universe. It, it works. It works well. 
The story is it's fun to read, puts a smile on your face. It's by far probably that I've read, it's it's by far the best Christmas Christmas story that DC's put out in years. I, I can't think of one that's been this entertaining. I'd have to go back probably to the eighties for a good Christmas story. But this this is like this is pretty good. And we're only I think I think it's four issues long and it, you know, yep. an issue's released every week. So it's 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 well worth people picking it up if you want a good taste of Christmas cheer. Yeah, and you you know, in the last couple of years, I may make God, maybe that the first one was five five years ago. Now it's been that long. Uh, we had Claws, right? That came out um, from Grant Morrison with art by Dan Mora. That's the first time I got to experience Dan Mora's art, and it was you know set in the past and very much rooted in myth and what have you. And I think there's three different volumes because uh, the first one was so successful. If you're a fan of that, those Claws stories, uh, we haven't got one from Morrison in a few years. Pivot over to this. It's got that same kind of feel going back and mining um, myths uh, and dealing with Santa Claus, obviously. So amazing. Uh, all right. Up next, we have World's Finest Teen Titans, number six. This is the final issue of the series. Mark Waite is the writer. We've got Mike Norton on art pages one and three through 11. And then Emanuela Lupacchino, page two and 12 through 20. Colors by Jordi Belair, letters by Steve Wands. What do you think of this final issue, Rocky? Well, Mark Wade. Uh, Mark Wade has spent uh, the last the, the last five issues uh, getting us to know uh, all of these uh, all of the younger versions of these characters that we know so well: Dick Grayson, Roy Harper, uh, Donna Troy, uh, uh, Bumblebee, etc. And you know, uh, basically, uh, he's weaving a story of re- what is ultimately their some of their first misadventures where they're getting to know each other as a team. And ultimately this uh, culminates with them being last issue. They were sort of humiliated by the terror Titans that made them look like fools. And there's a lot of inner turmoil and conflict between the team members, whether it's Donna Troy's sort of dysfunctional relationship with Garth, uh, whether it's um, the whole team not really liking Dick Grayson, Dick Grayson finally revealing, uh, Robin finally revealing his secret identity, but he was under pressure from Batman, told not to reveal his secret identity. Roy Harper's uh, sort of distant, distant relationship with his, with his, uh, with his uh, surrogate father, uh, Oliver Queen. Uh, all of that comes to a head here, uh, where they, where Robin, you know, finally they decide to work as a team because, as as Robin himself says in this issue, the reason why they lost the Team Titans, the reason why they lost the the, the Terror Titans was not because they were beaten by the Terror Titans; it was because they defeated themselves because they never got along and they didn't work as a team, and that changes here. And of course. Uh, they, this entire issue sort of plays out like a movie uh, where this is the third act of a movie where they, where the heroes finally get their act together and come together as heroes and defeat the bad guys. That's what this, it, that's what this issue is. And it's done in, in I think in, in, it's done very well. Uh, the art by Emmanuel Pacino and um, Mike Norton, the combined on the art colors, uh, Jordi Belair and the colors fan uh, really well. Uh, they defeat the Terror Titans and, and they do it. Uh, they do it in. Uh, I love the choreography. I like how they work together. Like the action scenes, uh, it all works very well. Uh, I mean, a lot of the lessons here are a little bit tropey, you know, because Terror Titans are technically aggressive good guys. So there's a little bit of interplay there, where Terror Titans fancy themselves good guys, but they use lethal force, whereas Teen Titans, of course, don't want to do that. And you know, there's a lot of lessons that you you'd expect. 
uh, Dick Grayson confronting, confessing to Batman. He thinks Batman's not going to let him be on the team anymore, but he makes the sacrifice, revealing his secret identity. He, he breaks, you know, he, it's emotional, uh, but and he, he confesses himself to Batman. He doesn't want to lie to Batman, but Batman gives him a chance. And, and right away, we're seeing the early, we see early signs of Dick Grayson becoming a team player before Batman does. And that's one of the reasons why Nightwing is such is we got to remember that the present day Nightwing is one of the most beloved and liked genuinely the most liked hero in the DC universe as, as played out in dark crisis. There's a reason for that. Dick Grayson is a team player night. He will become Nightwing. Robin will become Nightwing who is a team player. And he became a team player even really before Batman did as Batman himself, uh, uh, acknowledges here in this issue. I thought it was very well done. Mark Wade, he's the perfect writer for this because he knows the modern, he knows where these characters have ended up and he knows how to craft a tale that will seamlessly sort of tie into that, but with modern day take and sensibility. And he's, he's done it uh, very well here. And uh, I want to give a compliment again to Jordi Bolero on the colors because uh, there's no other team in, 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 in superhero comics that, that that benefits from a great colors more than the Teen Titans. It they, it really pops off the page. So I I enjoyed this issue. It was a great end to this uh, six issue story arc. What do you think? Yeah, I mean the, it's interesting to use that that phrase pops off the page because the cause the colors are sort of muted a little. They're not these bright primary colors. Uh, and being that this is sort of an origin story for a team that's you know been around for decades, it makes sense to do it almost in like this. It's not sepia tone, but it's it signifies that this has happened in the past, but obviously this is a modern retelling of them getting together, which also is kind of the feel of the story, right? Like this isn't silver age. This isn't, you know, and happy ending sort of thing where they always get along and, you know, it's white hats and black hats and whatever. There's more nuance. There's more um, kind of realism to the relationships that these teenagers have. So, all of that really works. It, it, it's a, it, it's a very good job at introducing a new generation of readers to who the Teen Titans are as a team, why they are teammates, why their why their team ups work, why you know, and and maybe it's a little on the nose with the Terror Titans, the way they're able to beat the Terror Titans because the Teen Titans can work together, and ultimately the Terror Titans can't, right? Uh, and, and Robin acknowledges that. He says, hey, at the end of the day, we're a team. We, you know, we actually work together. You mentioned how well they are fighting together. And even from the start of confronting the Terror Titans, the plan that Dick Grayson comes up with, the trust he shows by finally revealing his secret identity, uh, the punishment he gets from Batman, it's all very much there and feels nostalgic and, and feels like this could have happened in the you know recent past 10 years ago, let's say, when these characters got together. Um, maybe 15 at the most. Uh, but yeah, it's a very, it's a very good introduction to who the Teen Titans are um, and kind of bringing their origin into modern times. And then you can go read Tom Taylor's um, Teen Titan or Tom Taylor's Titan series and see, you know, what those relationships between these different characters look like when they've matured. So ultimately I think it was very successful. Um, I'm not the biggest Titans fan, but uh, for someone who is or somebody who wants to kind of get a feel for who the Titans were at the beginning, this is a great, uh, great example, great book to take a look at. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Action Comics number 1060, the main story, New World Part 4 from writer Philip Kennedy Johnson, art by Eddie Barrows, Fico Osio, and Eber Ferreira, 
with Joe Prado and Jonas Trinidad, and then colors by Matt Herms with Chris Sotomayor, and finally Dave Sharp on letters. Big reveal, last issue, um, that the head of the Blue Earth Movement was actually uh, this Talia al Ghul, um, or not Talia al Ghul, but uh, the daughter of, um, of Talia al Ghul and Batman from a, from a different Earth. Um, so she's uh, she calls herself Sister Shadow. And uh, again, if you read Batman and Authority special that uh, PKJ was involved in, that actually ties into this. It's so long ago, I don't really remember that story very well. Um, but I'm sure if you went back and read it, it would give you more context uh, into this story. We also get uh, a glimpse at what um, Otho uh, looks like in her incarnation that she was on this other Earth, this other part of the, the multiverse uh, where she wasn't rescued from War World by Superman. Uh, great looking design by Eber for absolutely amazing um, and, and it's all explained, right? Like the blue earth movement, why this sister shadow, um, has it in for Superman, why she wants to destroy him, why she's been traveling all over, the, um, different versions of, uh, earth and so establishing these blue earth movements and basically getting the, those worlds to sort of denounce and turn their back on Superman and, and not support him, not believe in him. Uh, it's, it's, it's a big revenge plot basically. So it's magic and Superman is aware that it's magic that uh, sister shadow is using to give normal people, uh, powers. So they feel like they don't, you know, need the super family to help protect them. Uh, so when it comes to magic, who better to, to help, um, Superman find out where Otho has gone. Uh, somebody he considers his daughter. He goes and recruits John Constantine. And Constantine, right away, very wary of what's going on, warns Superman about, you know, getting involved, talks a lot about the transactional nature of magic and uh, how Superman needs to be very, very careful. But, of course, it's his daughter that's missing. So when he thinks he hears her voice coming from uh, a magical hourglass that's in the uh, kind of the layer of Sister Shadow, he grabs it and is pulled into hell, quote-unquote. So we'll see where that goes from here. Um, but great story. Again, showcasing the ability for uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson to world-build, you know, in this case, with the magic corner of the DC Universe, with this Sister Shadow character, with this, uh, you know, other dimension where she's uh, out for revenge and looking to uh, to vanquish Kryptonian. So I'm really enjoying this. Um, I'm going to be sad to see Philip Kennedy Johnson not on Superman anymore uh, because the guy is just an incredible idea machine. Don't get me wrong. I'm looking forward to seeing what some of these other superstar writers, Jason Aaron and what have you do, but I'm going to miss Philip on, the, on Superman just because his ideas are so big. I know it wasn't necessarily on – the War World story, War World Saga at the beginning, but it won me over uh, eventually. And ever since uh, then, you know, once he kind of got three quarters of the way through that, and ever since then, he's been just firing on all cylinders. And uh, I, I just, you know, I like his Superman so much. And, you know, when we had him on the show, he talked so much about um, leveling up Superman in terms of the power level that he has. Uh, and I feel like there's a lot of that that hasn't been 
uh, explored as much as I would have liked to see it. You know, like, go back to that Luther Superman fight that we saw where Luther like shoots him, you know, to a different galaxy or whatever. And he flies back in a split second. Um, yeah, I'm going to miss seeing stuff like that for sure. So, uh, anyway, what are your thoughts on the, the first story here in action? It, it caught me totally off guard. I had no idea. I had no idea that this sister shadow uh, even exists. I, I don't recall. I, I don't think I ever read that, that Superman Authority special that there was this uh, daughter of Bruce Wayne or, or Talia, the daughter of an Al Gaul and Bruce Wayne and another universe. I don't think that she was mentioned. Uh, the Her world, her part of the multiverse was mentioned, but I don't think she was specifically mentioned in that yeah. story. But I could be well, wrong. Well, uh, it, uh, I'm fully admitting that it probably was. I just forgot. And, and so I – this shit wasn't even on my radar. This I would never have guessed this in a million years. But I like it. I kind of like it. It's kind of cool. It, it, and I, I like that it kind of conveniently wraps this plot up because I, I didn't uh, – you know, some people are saying that uh, – think that maybe uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson, maybe he's being prematurely – his run is prematurely ending. Uh, what some people are suggesting, and may- maybe that's true, in- to make way for Jason Aaron's four-issue uh, Bizarro run, which which will be coming out in the new year, uh, that may be the case. But I actually like this. This this doesn't feel rushed to me. I think it's kind of cool. I-, I like it, and it it's something that y- you expect somebody a powerhouse menace like this, Sister Shadow, to come out of the shadows to 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 try to take over the Earth to get revenge because they used to have sort of a multiversal uh, empire or. Universal Empire and different worlds that was that and their their machinations were destroyed by Batman and Superman at one point, and uh, I kind of like it. I like the image of the future of what Arthur, or Ortho, uh, also might end up being uh, the uh, Superman's daughter, uh, and he, he calls her her daughter. Superman thinks of uh, uh, his the, the the orphans as his his uh, children, and that's made quite clear. Uh, there's some really epic art. It's, it really is. It's it's this is a beautifully look beautiful looking story, and I'm really curious to see how it ends. I love seeing John Constantine. I love his warning Superman. You know, you know Superman. You know, don't touch anything. They're in a magic room. Don't touch anything. This is a magic room. Of course, Superman. I mean, you know, Superman. Uh, it reminds me of 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 uh, Silver Age stories, or or even the stories of between Superman and Batman in the '80s, where Batman would always tell Superman, you know, quit rushing into things all the time. You know, think a little bit more before you rush in. Superman is rushing. He's letting his emotions get the best of him. And John Constantine is frustrated, and Superman ends up getting pulled in. We get Bloodwind and the Demon at the end, which is pretty cool. The last time we saw Bloodwind was hell uh and he's got a pretty cool origin which is related to doomsday and so to see bloodwind again and the demon and they're going to be helping superman defeat uh this the shadow sis the sister shadow i think i'm really curious to see how this is going to end i've uh yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to it so yeah kudos to pkj and the whole creative team on this it's, this was one of the more enjoyable ones this week for me yeah, the second issue or second story we have <clears throat> Suicide Dreams from writers Nicole Maines and Steve Orlando. Fico Osio is the artist, colors by Luis Guerrero, letters by Rob Lee. It kind of continues with a um, story we got in uh, Titans Beast World Tour Metropolis number one, where Dreamer and John Kent um, teamed up. Now that we're continuing with that, um, you know, following right on the heels of, of their battle and, and, um, and Dreamer sort of relocating some of the immigrants of Metropolis to kind of a, a secret town. Um, 
as it were. They're hanging out there when Amanda Waller shows up at Dreamer's door and somehow convinces Dreamer to go along. Like, I can't believe, I mean, John Kent tries to stop her, you know, stop Dreamer from going, saying, you know, forgive our bleeding hearts. You know, she doesn't work for you. We can't believe anything you say. But, you know, Dreamer does have the ability to see the future. She realizes bad things are going to happen if she doesn't go and help Waller. But bad things are always going to happen when Amanda Waller is uh, is involved. So she does agree to go. She does um, agree to help. But she doesn't do things exactly the way Amanda Waller wants her to. But it turns out that, that Waller's okay with that because what it, this really was was a test to see if Dreamer would maybe do some things that were not necessarily over the line but really close to the line, like sort of compromise her morals for the greater good. Um, and at the end, we get this scene with Dr. Hate um, and Amanda Waller, and she's going to try to manipulate dreamer and get dreamer to sort of work for her i'm sure she'll try to blackmail her or trap her or in some way manipulate her because she realizes how powerful dreamer is the fact that she can see the future and then do things that change the future obviously that's somebody that amanda waller wants to control so it's just more amanda waller being a scumbag uh nothing new under the sun there um but I really do enjoy Dreamer, especially in the hands of uh, Nicole Maines, the writer. She's the actress that portrays Dreamer in um, in the CW. Um, I think it was CW shows that she showed up in. Uh, and it's clear that she, obviously she has a great affinity for the character and really getting a feel and helping to s- kind of steer the direction of Dreamer uh, forward in the DCU proper. So we'll see how that all plays out. Um and we'll talk more about Amanda Waller uh, later in the episode when we talk about some other books. So, um, uh, And I should also mention the Fico OCO art is absolutely amazing, but I've been really impressed with his art ever since we saw him on the um, the Shiloh Norman Mr. Miracle uh, series that we had. So uh, his art continues to be amazing. What do you think? Yeah, I was I was a little confused. I wasn't – how was Black, Amanda Waller blackmailing Dreamer to help her here? She says – Unless you want your hometown all over the 8 o'clock news, she's threatening to reveal Dreamer's secret identity to her hometown? Is that what she's trying to do? I don't, yeah, I don't so you remember uh, it was um, it was Livewire that was infected with uh, the spores from right. Garo, and she ended up – and she saw in her mind's eye with her powers that that, that portion of Metropolis where a lot of um, – uh, immigrants lived was going to be destroyed. So she helped all those immigrants to relocate somewhere, a secret town, Paramus, I think it's called. Um, and yeah. And so uh, she's I mean, Waller's threatening to, you know, let the authorities know, Hey, there's all these immigrants. I'm sure some of them are not there legally. Uh, and also reveal to all those immigrants uh, in that secret town that uh, Nia Nal and Dreamer are one in the same. So I think Dreamer's thought is okay. not necessarily she's worried about her secret identity, but that if uh, if people know that she's Dreamer, then they may go after some of the citizens of the town to get to Dreamer, right? Like yeah. it's like you wouldn't want anybody to know Superman's identity because then they're you know the enemies of Superman are going to go after the people that he loves. So kind of that situation, but it definitely seems like uh, Waller wants to keep Dreamer close uh, and try to figure out a way to get more control over her. So she'll be able to blackmail her, but blackmail her, blackmail Dreamer in a in a worse way or a more, I guess, powerful way, so that she yeah. can force Dreamer to do what she wants. Hey, tell me what the future is. Tell me how I 
gain dominion over the. I mean, what's Amanda Waller's endgame at this point? To to be the like emperor empress of Earth? It doesn't seem like anything less than I get to tell everybody what to yeah. do and they have to do like. I don't understand what Waller's endgame is. I just want all the power. I just want to be the boss. I just want to be able to do anything I want to whomever I want, whenever I want. Like she's become such a terrible two-dimensional character, which again, we'll talk about more of that later, but anyway. Uh, yeah. I, I, Amanda Waller is just, uh, she's, she's a one trick pony and uh, you know, her, her tricks by now uh, should have long since been held against her because she's fairly transparent, but uh it was obvious here on the, on what uh, what the writer was what uh, Mia Mains or whatever uh, what's the character what's the writer's name again Nicole Mains Nicole Mains what she's trying to do you got to get from point A to point B which is Amanda Waller just blackmailing being in a position of blackmail Dreamer one thing that I thought was unfortunate that I think is a little out of character for Dreamer quite frankly uh, had there but if Mains had more time is I I can't she just like just straight up attacked afterthought and they, you know, it would seem to me that she would probably talk and reason with that thought. I mean, afterthought, I mean, it actually says right in the narrative, he's attacked by death squads. Well, and like he killed death squad, a death squad was out to kill afterthought and he killed the death squad. Well, obviously. So what did he do wrong? The death squads after me, I might kill them too, if I had the ability. So it didn't sound to me that afterthought was necessarily this psychotic individual. And you sent a death squad to take him out and he wants revenge against Amanda Waller. Who doesn't want revenge against Amanda Waller? And so I was hoping for a little bit more of a rational dialogue between Dreamer and afterthought. Uh, instead, she she captures afterthought and uh, as if somehow he's he's this, you know, uh, you know, I get it. But but now all that's happened is that afterthoughts back in Amanda Waller under Amanda Waller's control. It just seems a little bit silly. Amanda Waller's got her hands in so many different things, and it's a little bit astonishing to me that you know not only top guys like Batman, but the entire superhero community that all this is going on, you know, behind the scenes, and you know you know C level characters like Dreamer are being used, and as well as. Uh, a-list villains like Dr. Hate, who she also manipulated Dr. Hate. Dr. Hate betrayed her uh, and uh, at some point got back under the fold. So, but like I said, I mean, Amanda Waller is, uh, I, I wish she's, there's so much potential there for this story, but they, they never really seem to really make her truly be a compelling threat other than, again, it's a one-trick pony. I mean, all she does is show up at the 11th hour with some leverage here and there. And it's, I'd like to see a little bit more. Uh, it's missing something, and uh, uh, what we'll have to see. I'm not even sure what event this is leading into. What big event are we leading into? Are we going to call it the Amanda Waller event? Call it the Wall? Like, what is the event that we're leading into with Amanda Waller's games here? I don't know what the hell it is. Maybe it's the next summer event that hasn't been mentioned. But in any event, um, yeah, okay. Amanda Waller once again has blackmailed another superhero. Yeah, news at eleven, right? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, the last story, I mentioned it earlier. It's a story uh, about uh, Lore and, you know, that being the son of Jorel and Jorel himself. This leads into the Jorel, um, or not Jorel's, General Zod, sorry. Uh, General Zod and Zod's son, Lore. It leads into Neil before Zod. We know that's the Zod series that's coming from Joe Casey and Dan McCade uh, as artists. Casey's the writer here. McCade is the artist. So this is the feel and the look of what we're going to get in that series. John Kalis on colors, Troy Petrie on letters. Um, 
so I think it leads into for lore into Sinister Sons. For Zod leads into um, that Neil before Zod number one and <laughs> gives us an idea of what exactly is going to happen. Joe Casey's given us a lot of hints of something that happens where Zod kind of stops being so benevolent, uh, not necessarily benevolent even, but, you know, Joe Casey, when I interviewed him, he was like, hi, ah, guy was reading up on what Zod was doing and he's on this planet and he's trying to establish a new Krypton or whatever. And he's not just being the bad Neil before Zod guy that I knew. And I'm like, what the hell is this? Zod's, you know, a bad guy. Uh, and he's going to be turning him back into a bad guy. So there's hints here. Uh, think of this as an, uh, a prologue for that, if you will. But, it's all sort of mysterious. We don't know. We know Zod's up to something, but it's not really clear what exactly it is in reading the story. Uh, but it has me. I'm really excited for that Neil before Zod series. And this has, uh, you know, has me really anticipating getting to check out that Zod series. So we'll see. what do you think? Yeah. I'm going to, I, I want to promote this. I want to, I want to recommend this speak uh, because I, I think it's going to be interesting. I hope it's going to be really good. Uh, let's be clear here. Going back to when Bendis wrote Superman and I don't want to give people, you know, post-traumatic stress uh, when I, when I mentioned Bendis' Superman run, but uh, his uh, uh, general Zod during that run became, was given, ultimately ended up, he was given his own planet by the United Planets and new Kandor. Uh, he, he was creating a new, uh, uh, well, in fact, in fact, some of the inhabitants from the bottle city of Candor ended up on New Candor. Uh, long story short, and so General Zod has his own planet and is starting a new Kryptonian race on this New Candor planet. And you know, you mentioned Joe Casey saying, "Look, I want my General Zod to be an evil bastard." And this is a return to this is the beginnings of how General Zod maybe returns to true evil villain villain form. And this is the beginnings of that. And it looks as if his son Lor stumbled upon some some operation that his father is doing involving creating almost like a clone army of sorts uh, because they don't have enough uh, recruits. They don't have enough uh, men themselves on the uh, recruits or soldiers on the planet. So Zod seems to be going back in his, into his old militaristic ways. Zod is talking to members of the United Planets. He doesn't like being... Zod doesn't work well with others. He's more of an authoritarian. He probably doesn't like being told or maybe have, doesn't work well with a United Planets. And... Uh, and he himself has mentioned he he alludes to in the stories that there's been other he he's come under assault him and him and uh, his some of his uh, the people on, that reside on his planet have come under attack from from other space faring uh, sectors of of uh, of space and so slowly Zod is getting more and more pissed off and he's got something planned and and his son Lore stumbles on to some sort of operation that his father has at the very end where it looks like. Uh, General Zod has been almost looks like he's creating some sort of various I don't know outposts. Are they for military purposes? What are they for? His father's up to something, and he's not being honest, and he's not sharing it with his son, and that seems to upset Lore, and that is going to lead us into that first issue of Neil before Zod, and so and Ursa basically tell warns her husband, saying, you know, maybe don't keep our son in the dark. So it's going to be interesting to see where that story um, goes moving forward. So I would encourage everybody to keep an eye out for Neil before Zod number one. It might be one of the better series in the new year, I hope. Yeah, uh, I hope so as well, because it sure sounds great. I know Joe Casey's really excited about it. So anyway, next up is Titans Beast World number two. This is from writer Tom Taylor. Ivan Reis is the penciler. Danny Mickey on inks. Brad Anderson on colors. Wes Abbott on letters. We're both big fans of uh, the first issue. And it's leading into, or at least mentioned in a lot of other books uh, that we've been talking about. 
the events of uh, of Beast World affecting the DC universe overall. So, what do you think of issue two? I didn't mind it. I I, I didn't find that a heck of a lot happened, to be honest. Uh, it's it, most of the issue consisted of just uh, Nightwing uh, battling Batman, who changed who's who has changed into a beast, and a couple of interesting revelations here. First, I got to say. Ivan Reese's art is fantastic. Continues to be just just amazing. Uh, where it starts off, we're we're privy to the, the the spores continuing to spread around the planet, and these 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 Garo spores basically change people into animals, and these spores seem to be attracted to the most powerful beings. So. So that's a threat to the heroes of Earth because while many humans, millions of humans are affected, affected by the Garo, the Garo spores, uh, the minute they, these spores detect a superhero, somebody who's the most powerful, uh, that's these spores certainly migrate or more likely to migrate to superheroes, to, to metahumans, to superpowered beings, and that is obviously a threat. <laughs> Poor Animal Man. I think it's on page three or four. He's just going insane because Animal Man suddenly – all at once, you can imagine somebody who's attuned to the animal kingdom. All at once, he's he bombarded with uh, the senses of a, of a million more different animals instantly uh, appearing on the earth, and it practically drives him insane. And meanwhile, then uh, a good portion of the comic is Batman just battling, saving people, rescuing them from people, other people who turned into the animal into animals from the Garo spores. And uh, Nightwing and Batman work very well together. I thought that I, I thought that the fight scenes were just amazing. It just I, I love this DC house style. It's so great. Ivan Reese is just he embodies it so well. Fantastic scene of Batman being overcome by the spores. And Nightwing having to take him out. His interaction with with Oracle, Oracle indicating uh, there's a fantastic uh, just one page but beautiful scene of Oracle computer screens behind her showing all major places on Earth overwhelmed by the spores. I can't believe I'm saying this because I made fun of this event early on. I made a lot of I, I made fun of it. I didn't expect a lot, but this actually feels that there's actually something at stake. I can't believe this. Of all things, a threat from Beast Boy. God, I wanted that guy to be dead in Dark Crisis. I I will remind people. And but anyways, I'm I just I'm really enjoying this. Uh, Black Adam's going crazy in Kandak, and Batman is possessed now. And and ultimately, the issue just ends with Batman or Nightwing sort of needing to cage Batman, and Amanda Waller, uh, our favorite character, you know, uh, w wanting to. Uh, even Amanda Waller feels that things are getting out of control. So you know that things are, you know. A little bit worse than she thought, but as Doctor Hate tells Amanda Waller, like you wanted me to do this. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm called Doctor Hate. I'm I'm basically a glorified Lord of Chaos, for God's sakes. What you expect things were going to go exactly according to your master plan, and so it's uh, it's exciting. It it feels like a there's even though not necessarily a lot happens, it's an adrenaline rush and it's it's fun and. I think it's uh, again. I, I I had a smile on my face reading it, and it was it also was one of the better ones this week. So, what do you think? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, it's not so strange to kind of see an event take this sort of uh, the sort of story structure style, right? Like the first issue covered a lot. Like we found out there's a Necro Star. It uh, goes up against Staros. Tr you know, traditionally they're sort of these mortal cosmic ent entities and enemies, if you will. And it was a big story with Gar. We both loved it. He, you know, he had to transition from, you know, Gar to elephant to blue whale to, you know, eventually become a Starro. And, 
covered a lot. They defeated the Necrostar and then, you know, all hell broke loose with Dr. Hate, uh, basically um, kind of brainwashing Gar or affecting him in some way that, you know, he lost control of all the spores and affected a bunch of, of people on Earth, right? So big story, a lot of events, uh, a lot of time relatively passes relatively quickly in uh, the issue with, you know, everything going wrong. And now issue two, now we bring it home and, and make it seem, you know, more intimate, more relatable. Why should we care? Right. And seeing Batman be affected and turn into this like wolf type uh, creature. Uh, yeah. Then, then we care. Right. And we see Nightwing fighting against them. You can feel Nightwing's angst and what have you. Uh, so it's sort of a, almost a cliched way to uh, tell the event, but it, it, but it works, you know, and especially when you read it in a collected edition, which let's face it, that's how a lot of people read their comics. Now you're going to have, you know, the story beats that go up and down where, you know, you're going to go to uh, the big events, what's going on. Now let's zoom in on to see how some certain individuals are affected. It brings in the idea of, Hey, uh, the last thing you want is super powered, beans being affected by these spores it's laid out very well here by taylor it doesn't feel like uh spoon fed it comes across very naturally hey by the way what we've seen is the spores leave regular people to go to more powerful hosts um you know we get black adam as a, a lion uh in this issue as well which is really cool to see and i think he's uh, even on the main cover so a lot of fun it feels big i imagine the story is going to alternate going to continue to alternate back and forth between big overall, hey, what's going on, and smaller stories that are focused on certain individuals. And then we're seeing a lot of one-shots that are anthologies that DC's been, this is kind of their MO now with the way they do uh, events, which I'm not a fan of. Uh, and to be clear, you can just read the main story. You don't need to pick up the other one-shots that have three or four stories. Uh, a lot of times that's DC's way of giving some lesser-known creators chance to see what they can do. Yes, you can get a little more out of it. Yes, sometimes there are stories that are a little more important than others, but you, if you just read the main story, you're going to be told everything you need to know. So continue to be impressed by Ivan Arisa's art. He's absolutely amazing. Um, this is his last DC work. If you didn't hear, he's moving over to Image exclusively to work with Jeff Johns on his ghost machine or whatever the imprint is called uh, over there. So uh, at least he's going out on a high note with this uh, this event. Uh, up next, we have Superman Lost, number nine, script by Christopher Priest. Carlo Pagulian handles most of the pencils. Uh, Jason Paz on inks. And then we have Dan Jurgens doing a few of the pages. Brett Breeding does the inks over Jurgens art. We have Jeremy Cox on colors, Willie Schubert on letters. Uh, pretty interesting here. We sort of expected Superman to lose it once he realized Lois had cancer. Um, and Lex Luthor was the cause, and we sort of see that, but there it's interesting. Priest has these images of Superman doing Luther in, but it's all Superman sort of imagining what it would be like to be able to cut loose against Luther. Um, I sort of have mixed feelings about that. You, you want to think that Superman is better than most of us, and he doesn't fantasize about taking out Luther in that way. But at the same time, this isn't the same Superman that we're used to, right? He's been through a lot. He's been through some trauma. Um, and at the end, Hope, the lan Green Lantern that betrayed Superman while he was on that planet that he dubbed Kansas way out uh, in space, uh, she shows up on Earth. So what the ramifications of that are going to be, I guess we'll see. But it is laid out for those who didn't get the sort of subtext of last issue that, you know, Lois comes right out and says it. 
yeah, you came, Superman, you came back physically. Clark, you came back physically. But you were, you're here, but you're lost to me. You're not actually home uh, because your mind is still out there. So it's an interesting issue bouncing back and forth with the flashbacks of how it's almost like Christopher Priest was like, you know what? I want to write an issue where Superman gets to kill Lex Luthor in a bunch of different creative ways. Um, and those are typically the Dan Jurgens pages. So it's it's kind of interesting, but at the same time, it felt a little choppy um, because it does bounce back and forth. Um, and it's one of those uniquely Christopher Priest written issues that I, I could see if you just picked up this issue, you'd be like, what the hell's going on? Like you really need the context of what's come before in the story. And likely this issue will make even more sense and feel a little less choppy once we see how it all ties together. So again, going back to the idea of reading it as a trade, that'll work a hundred percent and work very, very well. But as a standalone, it is a little bit problematic, but uh, I'm perfectly fine with it because I have been reading, I have been enjoying and the Carlo Pagulian art continues to be amazing. And, uh, the other thing I really loved about the issue is it really showcased the strength of Lois in terms of being able to stand up for herself and really her being sort of Clark's anchor um, to Metropolis and to his humanity and kind of his touchstone. Um, and we find out that she never really had cancer at all. Luther faked it all and was giving her symptoms. Um, so she's not going to die, which is a good thing uh, as well. So. Uh, yeah, overall, pretty strong issue, but not, not the strongest of the series. A little bit of a bridge issue to what comes next, I imagine. What'd you think? Uh, I, I'm still a little confused. Did she, so she, did she fake being pregnant or not? She said she got a stick. Yes, she did. So she did actually fake a pregnancy just to get a rise or to snap Clark out of his. Mental- no, no. She faked a pregnancy so that she could hide the fact that Luther gave her cancer. She thought Luther gave her cancer. So she's sick. She's laying in bed. She's not feeling well. She's throwing up. She doesn't want Superman to know she has cancer. So she blames the nausea and the vomiting on being pregnant. She's trying to keep Superman from going and killing Luther because Luther gave her cancer. So she thought. Well, isn't that what I just said? She faked being pregnant. You said she faked being pregnant to shock him out of his mental whatever. Oh, no, but, she, but, well, she does. Oh, she well, she faked. She okay. So she she, she, but she faked did being fake pregnant to hide her cancer. To, well, she was she didn't have cancer. She faked, but she didn't know that at that time because Luther gave her all the symptoms of cancer. Okay, so she faked she her pregnancy she, because she thought her husband would go kill Lex Luther if she she thought she had cancer. She didn't want Superman to know she had cancer. So she faked pregnancy, morning sickness, basically, to hide the fact that she was sick. But turns out she wasn't really sick. Luther just gave her the symptoms. And once she figured that out, she's able to stop Superman from doing anything. So, yeah, I know you had a big problem with that last time. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I, she- I, it makes sense. It, it does. And, and, and thank you for clarifying yeah. it. Uh, by the, I still like this story. I, I still love it. I, I still love this concept. I love this story. And I, I like what Christopher Priest has done here. This has been one of the more, frankly, introspective and one of the better written Superman stories. I, I love this as a miniseries, maxi series, because of, of the story of how of what it addresses. And frankly, I, I Lois's actions, uh, I can understand it. Uh, as she said, I mean, 
she doesn't think that Lex, I mean, I, Superman would never think, uh, Superman would never kill Lex Luthor. Uh, but at the same time, I really love the conversation that Superman ha has with his psychologist. That psychologist who basically, Superman sort of denies ever having feelings that he wants to kill Lex. But as the psychologist says, I mean, he actually uses scientific terms and says, bullshit, you don't. You absolutely have thought about you're having these visions of hurting Lex for a reason. You hate him. And this is what happens when you hate people. You, I mean, so, I mean, uh, but Superman, because he doesn't want to hate Lex, he's sort of a little bit in denial about his hatred of Lex. And yet he, he chooses to embrace the better angels of his nature consistently, despite everything he go, goes through. But yet his mind, you can tell internally he struggles with it and he, and he can't help but uh, throughout this entire issue have, uh, have he imagines events where he's actually taking and ending Lex Luthor's life. And it's, it's interesting. And you got to wonder how much of that is as a result of his, what he's struggling with his isolate, you know, his, you know, his, his mental struggles coming back from, you know, being gone for 20 years, coming back, finding out that he, you know, he's lost the love. He's lost an entire life that he lived for 20 years. He comes back to earth finds out Lex is doing it or b believes Lex has maybe potentially killed his wife and, and, is play and is playing mind games with him, taking advantage of him. You can see why Superman would be so frustrated and still he doesn't, you know, he still maintains and keeps his uh, composure. And, and then at the, a great ending with Hope showing up and she appears to be pregnant. I wonder what Lois is thinking. <laughs> so uh, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. Because we don't, we only got one issue left. This is a ten issue series, so be interesting to see how Christopher Priest wraps this up. Yeah, especially with Hope showing back up, you know, seemed like the Clark started to have some sort of inappropriate feelings for her when when uh, <laughs> he was out there, and then you know finds out she killed the other guy that he was had befriended. So yeah, yeah. A, lot of, a lot of soap opera drama as you would expect from a Christopher Priest book. So uh, all right, up next we have Waller versus Wildstorm, issue number four from writers Spencer Ackerman and Evan Narcisse. Pencils by Jesus Moreno, inks by Vicente Sofuentes, colors by Michael Atea, letters by Dave Sharp. Um, yeah, there's some there's some real problems with this uh, this series, right? First of all, it took way too long to come out, right? On top of that, Spencer Ackerman is a is a novelist uh, and a journalist. He's used to writing prose, so this is a very dialogue heavy issue. Um, it's been a dialogue heavy series, but th this really kind of turns that up to the next level, probably in order to finish it in these four issues. But again, lateness just kills books. It absolutely kills momentum and it kills books. I, I'd forgotten. I still am. I need to, if I wanted to, if it was worth the effort and time, I'd go back and reread this to make sure I have a good understanding. I sort of have a gist of what was going on, but again, it took so long to come out that it lost its momentum DC is doing itself no favors in terms of sales. People aren't going to buy this because it's been so long since issue three came out. Um, and I get it. Ackerman is a prose. He's used to write, writing in prose. And so although it's wordy, it's not necessarily a bad thing because it does get the gist across, but it's also not in continuity. Waller acts like a complete scumbag. It's one thing for her to betray and lie to all the superpowered beings. We know she has disdain and contempt for them, but now she's doing it to her supposed colleagues, right? So, in terms of like characterization, I guess Spencer Ackerman completely understands what who DC wants Waller to be—a complete amoral piece of shit—because that's exactly how she comes across here. It just makes you want to like murder her, 
right? Like I guess get her come up and and I guess that's what DC wants, which, you know, I've never been a big fan of Amanda Waller, but when I think back to the version of Amanda Waller that Ostrander created, John Ostrander, when he created that version of the Suicide Squad, you know, there was a good backstory there. And it was like, she was this tough African-American woman who came from the slums and, and kind of had to, to make her own way and through her own force of will was able to, uh, you know, gain some power and have some influence and some authority. Yeah. She didn't exactly wield it the correct way, but I think, you know, at least her heart was in the right place. She was trying to do the right thing. She was doing what she believed in this version of Amanda Waller that we've had for the last decade or so, again, completely amoral scumbag where I don't even understand again, what, what's the end game. If every person superpowered otherwise in DC universe went to Amanda Waller and said, okay, Amanda, you're in charge. We're all going to do whatever the hell you want us to do. So, so what is it you want? What is it you want? Do you just want us to be able to, you know, do whatever you want us? I don't understand it. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Her, her whole thing is, oh, I want to keep America safe or whatever. It's like, how's America not safe? Like, I, I just, I don't understand the character anymore. She's become like so over the top, so ridiculously powerful, so ridiculously influential. She's like completely unbelievable as a character. Like I, I don't, I, I, you have to like throw her away at this point because any story that she's in, in my mind, she just ruins it. She just ruins it. She is so powerful. She's like the the worst ex Deus Machina that's ever been in comics. Like she can do anything she wants. She can manipulate whoever she wants. There's never any consequences for her actions. It's completely ridiculous. And this is a perfect example of you know the the crap that she pulls in this series. And she doesn't necessarily get exactly what she wants. But again, this is supposed to be her early in her career. And this is sort of an idea of how she gets to Bell Rev in the first place to eventually start the Suicide Squad, which only gives her more influence and authority eventually. So, it, you know, Waller versus Wildstorm, whatever. Uh, nobody's going to remember this. Again, the lateness of it hurt it. Um, the the structure, the story style, all the heavy dialogue, all the prose hurt it. Um, people, you know, the things that Ackerman pulled from, a lot of the political machinations of the Wildstorm universe, people that read DC don't really know about that stuff. I can't imagine it's going to be sell very well at all. Um, so again, I have to wonder what was the point. What was the point of this? It's not without its merits. The art is fantastic, um, and it is. You know, if you separate it from all the other context and history and whatever, and just read it as a standalone story and don't know anything about Amanda Waller or any of the DC or Wildstorm characters, there's there's value. There's entertainment value as as a story, um, but not a whole lot. Uh, because again, it's just so dialogue heavy and so prose heavy. So ultimately it's not something that I would, I would really recommend. And, uh, you know, I know part of that's because subjectively I just so sick of Amanda Waller at this point. Um, but I don't know, maybe you feel differently, Rocky, maybe you really enjoyed it. What, what are your thoughts on it? Man, I, I, I am stunned at how uh, complex this is. I, I'm somebody who I generally like continuity rich stories I won't shy away from them but I, I thought this this tries to combine I, I don't know what this series I'm not sure why this series was approved and I don't say that to be insulting to be clear this is a complex story but it's overly complex uh, this this issue read like a congressional like what it's like watching a congressional hearing this there was no action in this final issue none it was one long dialogue talking heads where 
they're talking with various members of what Mr. Majestic of all people shows up. What? And then they're 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 merging IO and Checkmate that enter the fray, and then Amanda Waller's in charge of that. This we get we get Lois Lane in the eighties. Lois Lane isn't. I mean, th this can't possibly be in continuity. Where's Superman? <laughs> yeah, it's black label. The Daily Planet. But yeah, it's black label, so it's not in continuity. No, no. I, I, okay, fine. Which underscores my point. I'm not sure why this exists. What, what I'm getting at here is, with a couple of tweaks, why not make this a cool origin for Amanda Waller? With less talking heads and a little bit more action... This you could actually this could have been something that fits in the mainstream continuity. It can't now. It's absolutely impossible. You can't fit this into me. Not even a little bit. Not even a, if this was stellar. If this was fantastic, you can't fit it in. It's not possible because of because of the. It, it's not a timely tale. It's not a timeless tale. It takes place in the eighties, and this happens, and that happens, and Lois Lane in there. But in a, it's in the Wildstorm universe. But this Lois again. It's not. You know, it's in its own universe. It's not bad, but. You know, it's unfortunately it's going to have a hard time finding an audience, and um, it didn't nail the landing either. This was a very, very disappointing first issue. It's completely misleading. It says chilling, and uh, you know, it says the final explosive issue. There's nothing explosive about it. There's nothing explosive about it. It's Amanda Waller being appointed to the top because she manipulates just through manipulation. There's there isn't even any killing in this. There isn't even there isn't any action in this final issue. This is really really disappointing. Really disappointing. Um, uh, in any event, uh, this uh, talk about ending on a whimper, going out with a whimper. That's exactly what this did. And so sad because because this took place in another universe and this wasn't in continuity. And we knew that up front to have this end with Amanda Waller on top again. The same old same old. So disappointing. You could have just done something different. This could have been an Amanda Waller that ends up losing, that gets her come up, and she could have thought outside the box. But instead, we get the same old sort of uh, story, but only considerably more boring. And that's just so sad to see. It's too bad because it had some pretty cool moments in earlier issues, particularly with the death of uh, uh, that one character who was killed by Deathstroke. So it has some cool action sequences, but this 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 has ended on a supremely disappointing note. Yeah, I can't can't say I disagree. Uh, all right, up next we have Titans Beast World Tour Gotham number one. Uh, has a few different stories in here, continuing the Batman transformation story uh, that we got in the regular Titans Beast World two. The Good Boy, Chip Zdarsky on script, Miguel Mendoca on art, Mike Spicer on colors, Lu Lucas Catoni on letters, which continues uh, the fight between Nightwing and this wolf Batman character, I, I guess you'd say. Uh, and then we have a, a, a second story. Grace Ellis is the writer. Daniel Hilliard is the artist. Rico Renzi on colors, Lucas Catoni on letters. We see what ha has happened to Harley uh, as she's been infected. Spoiler alert, she's turned into a giant bunny rabbit. Uh, like very muscular bunny rabbit. Not really particularly interesting in my mind. Uh, then we have a third story, Scavengers, written by Gretchen Felker Martin as the writer, even Charvin as the artist, Lucas Catonia on colors. We get to see uh, Jason Todd, Red Hood. He's turned into some sort of red wolf. Um, again, not particularly interesting. Doesn't really add much to the overall story. Uh, of Beast World, and then 
Uh, the next story is uh, a Huntress story. She is transformed as well. Kate Kane uh, or Cassandra Kane, uh, Batgirl, uh, goes after her. Uh, that's a story by Sam Maggs. PJ Holden is the artist. Lucas Catoni on letters. Um, again, not particularly interesting. Uh, a lot of these anthologies, like I said, it's DC's chance to give some of these writers who haven't done work at DC before or done very little work at DC before uh, have a chance to get their feet wet and work with editors and see if maybe they want to give them a larger assignment. Uh, a lot of people's first work at DC is in anthologies like this. Uh, the last story, uh, Kyle Starks, who's done some work at DC. Uh, we were big fans of his Peacemaker series, along with Kelly Jones, who's, you know, legendary a chance for DC to give Kelly Jones some work. Jose Villarubia on colors, Lucas Catoni on letters, and uh, it's Stephanie Brown's story. Uh, she confronts Killer Moth, who's actually been turned into a, not a moth, but a cockroach. Uh, and she ends up taking off her boot and beating her, beating Killer Croc or uh, Killer Moth with it because you know that's what we do with cockroaches, right? Take off your boot and beat them to death. Uh, yeah, and that's it. And again, the first story by Chip Zdarsky is far and away the best. Probably ties in the most closely with Beast uh, with uh, Beast War overall. Um, otherwise, this I mean, in my mind, you can skip this. Uh, I mean, you don't even need that Zdarsky story. It's not really going to affect the overall story of what's going on in beast war so again it's uh i understand why dc's doing this to give new creators a, a chance and see what they can do um but then you slap the beast world on it and it's making people think you have to buy it to understand what's going on in, in the beast world event you don't you can totally skip this so what are your thoughts on any or all of these stories rocky uh i don't have much to add although i will say that what what What's a perfect symbol of this and of the pointlessness of this issue is the the whole Batgirl Hunter storyline. I mean, uh, it almost insults the the entire premise of Beast World. I mean, Hunters turns into a cat, and the the central conceit and the joke it becomes a joke of a story where Cassandra Kane uses a laser pointer, and you know how when you have a cat, the cats will chase the laser pointer if you move the laser pointer on the wall. That's exactly what Hunter, Huntress is. Did you, I mean, Huntress, the Huntress, my God, Helena Bertinelli, probably one of the most angry women in the DC universe with latent anger. She's got anger issues coming out of her ass all the time. She's turned into a, like a, a Black Panther and she's, and she suddenly becomes passive and chases a, a laser pointer held by Cassandra Kane. It's made to be a joke. I, I know it's supposed to be funny in a story called Claw and Order. And, you know, again, it's kind of cute. But I personally, I don't like that. I, you know, if I got a big event and it's kind of cool and I feel a lot's at stake and the world's at stake and things are changing in animals and I'm, I'm getting into the story and then I get a side story like this that makes a mockery out of the plot line. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. It, 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 I find it bothersome. And so I, I, I viscerally am avoiding these, these one shot, these collateral issues because of stories like this that to me, they, they actually harm my appreciation of the concept of the story because it makes it into a, a, a joke. And, and why would you want to do that? And I, and I realize I, I, you're 100% right, obviously, that uh, you know it's about getting writers. And, and by the way, the art's great. P.J. Holden's art in that Claw and Order story is good. The art here is good. These are, these are really good, talented people. I just want the, these talented creators and artists and writers to be telling stories that have more relevance and uh, because I think they deserve better than that. Or maybe give them, give them a story, give them a story uh, 
a story to tell and art and things to draw that are more relevant to the main story proper. That's my rant. Mini rant. No, I, I totally agree. You're, you're right. It's diminishing the quality and, and making a mockery of the main story, which we're trying to take seriously. When they do it in things like the holiday special we're going to talk about in a little bit here, I think that works better, right? Because it's not tied into anything. But they're doing it in these events, and it's 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 just not it's not good execution. It's not good in terms of you know making people think you need to buy it to understand the event. There's just a myriad of reasons why they shouldn't be doing it for events. Uh, all right, up next we have Batman Gargoyle of Gotham. There's two different editions. You have the Nord edition that's in black and white. Uh, you have the regular edition in color. Raphael Grampa is the writer and artist. John Workman handles the letters. Uh, it's gorgeous, whether in black and white. It's such a different feel and a different experience reading it in black and white or color. I'm not going to tell you to buy them both. That you know, they are I think $6.99. They're larger stories, 52 issues. But interesting concepts. What Grandpa's doing here in terms of setting it up for Bruce, uh, for Batman to not want the Bruce Wayne persona. He's adding a little bit to um, the origin of uh, Batman in a way. Uh, some of the trauma that uh, Bruce experienced as a child on the night his parents were killed. I'm not going to spoil it. We usually spoil here. You got to go read it for yourself. I could see it being controversial. Uh, not necessarily true that Batman Gargoyle of Gotham is in continuity. We're seeing these villains. Uh, we saw Crytune, new villain last time. We see Mother for the first time this time as well as some hints of other villains who have not yet to be named, but it's a, uh, I don't want to say a sprawling story, but it's a big story, a story with a lot of different threads. It's going to be interesting to see how grandpa brings it all together. You know, this is the first story he's had a chance to uh, write himself. You know, he's done a lot of artwork uh, and people know him as an artist, but how he's going to bring this all together. The reason Bruce wants to, or the reason Batman wants to get rid of Bruce Wayne, wants to kill him off or what have you, makes a lot of sense with what's going on here. So there's a, I like the version of Alfred that we have here with a little bit more of an antagonistic relationship. Him and Bruce don't necessarily agree on the best way forward. Uh, same thing with Batman's relationship with, uh, with Gordon. Um, this is a different Batman, you know, not one that's necessarily thinking logically. He's, uh, he's acting a little bit, emotionally a little bit irrationally in terms of how can I best accomplish my mission um, and maybe reacting to certain events more than he should rather than taking a longer view. Uh, but it is a Batman that's, you know, earlier in his career. So that makes a lot of sense that he would be re reacting that way. I have a feeling this is going to be a series that long-term is evergreen that people go back and, and read and it really captures a certain feel of Batman, which again, isn't maybe the Batman that we're used to in the regular DC universe, but a story worth telling gorgeous artwork. Um, if you, again, you're reading the colored version, the colors are, are bring a different dimension to it as well. Um, I think ultimately I'm probably going to end up, what I'm hoping is actually they collect it in a hardcover, <clears throat> excuse me, that has both the black and white and the color. That would be ideal. Uh, probably save myself some money that way. But we'll see how that all plays out uh, in the end. So uh, any thoughts on this one, Rocky? Did you get a chance to, uh, to read it? it uh, yeah, I did. Uh, and I agree with you. Uh, I, I love uh, I love the, the, the sort of the, the retelling and sort of a, a different take on – on and it's it, the, the differences in, Bat, in Batman's origin and, and the relationship that Batman might have with Crytune going back to his origins, a young Bruce Wayne who's becoming Batman – it's 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 interesting. It's a different feel, and I particularly love the art. 
my one thing when this becomes when this comes out in hardcover form, my only complaint is that I really don't like generally uh, DC's hardcover. They use the cheapest material for their hardcovers, and their, their page quality is terrible generally. I find in their their hardcover renditions uh, because they cheap out on the hardcovers. I really wish DC wouldn't do that. I would I would love to see this in an oversized hardcover with good quality stock paper. That's not going to be happen. That's not DC doesn't do that anymore. They they used to. Uh, they, they they do it occasionally, but in any event, I, uh, I I was surprised by some of the revelations here, and I enjoy this. I I like the feel. I, I particularly love Commissioner Gordon. I really like uh, how how he's rendered here, and I like I like how we're watching him doing. Commissioner Gordon here is doing more of the detective work than even Batman. Bruce Wayne has is a lot of character work, but he's it's a young, arrogant, sort of cocky Bruce Wayne who is who Alfred is is not afraid to hold to account, and I like that. And uh, it's it's a really interesting take. And uh, I know that it's interesting. The first issue had sort of uh, mixed reviews. Uh, I noticed uh, you and I really enjoyed it, but uh, it was interesting to hear different takes on it. But I really like this. And and the layouts here, Raphael Grampus, some of the layouts, the unique layouts from page to page, uh, wow. I, I lack the, the uh, use of language to appropriately uh, describe and do the pages justice with uh, words. It's uh, I, I like the art. I like the art. And I want to give a shout out to the second printing. The second printing of issue one is actually behind me for those watching on YouTube. Um, I, I think it looks really cool. It's uh, Raphael Grandpa's rendition of Batman just in, in full regalia, and it looks almost like a sort of like a, a Victorian-style era movie poster. Uh, I, th I think it looks really cool. I want to pick up the second printing of the first issue, and I would encourage people to check it out. If they have happened to, to miss it, it should be in, in, in on, on the rack this week. But overall, this continues to be a very intriguing series, and I encourage people to check it out. Yeah, I agree 100%. I'm, uh, Raphael's definitely given his all, so... All right, DC's Twas the Night, sorry, DC's Twas the Might Before Christmas, the final story is a Batmite story. Uh, it's an 80-page giant. There's a ton of stories. We have Teen Titans story uh, written by Zipporah Smith, art and color by Logan Farber, letters by Dave Sharp, Harley Quinn and Amethyst story where they switch places, written by Rob Levin, art and color by Bob Quinn, letters by Hassan Osman Elhal, Lex Luthor and a Lextacular Christmas Carol, sort of a retelling of the Christmas Carol with Lex Luthor. Uh as Ebenezer Scrooge, basically written by Ethan Sachs, art by Sue Lee, colors by John Kalis, letters by Becca Carey. That one in Riddler on the Roof, written by Natalie Abrams, pencils by Moz Smith, inks by Norm Ratman, colors by Hi-Fi, um, letters by Travis Lanham. Booster Gold in the Santa Copies, written by Jill Grant, art by Rebecca Isaacs, colors by Kurt Michael Russell. Farron Delgado on letters. Superman in Streaks in the Sky, written by Michael W. Conrad, art by Gavin Goodry, letters, uh, sorry, colors by Ryan Cody, and letters by Becca Carey. Bunker in It's a Bunkerful Life, written by Josh Trujillo, art and colors by Andrew Drillon, letters by Lucas Catoni, and then Batmite in Wonderful Toys, written by Sholly Fish, art and color by Juan Babio, letters by Dave Sharp. This is a fun Christmas issue. Again, 80 page giants. So I think it's $6.99. The Titan story, it's okay. Raven sort of feels left behind, not feeling a connection with uh, the other Titans. And then, you know, stuff happens. Everybody else goes to a party. She feels like she's not welcome, not invited. But then members of the Fearsome Five show up, and she's there by herself. She defeats them. She feels like part of the family again. Harley Quinn and Amethyst, your typical Freaky Friday story. They switch places. It's okay. Uh, the Luther story, it's tongue-in-cheek. It's a Wonderful Life, 
Luther's very meta in the story. He's aware of what's going on and he kind of just shoves it all to the side and he doesn't have a change of heart because he's Lex Luthor. He's even worse than Ebenezer Scrooge. The Batwoman story may have been the best one because we had the Riddler's daughter and it was sort of heartfelt and that she doesn't want to follow her in her father's footsteps, but worries that she'll never please him because there is a relationship there. The Booster Gold story was just kind of weird. He touches Santa. Santa's been... Um, for lack of a better term, infected by some future tech. Rip Hunter shows up, and when Booster touches Santa, he becomes Santa, and then anybody that touches him becomes Santa. It's kind of weird, but it's fun, and the art's really strong in that one from Rebecca Isaacs. The Michael W. Conrad is uh, supposed to be feel very emotional. I don't know how well it succeeds. There's a guy at the beginning who's feeling very lonely around the holiday season. He's contemplating suicide. Superman talks to him, says, hey, I'm Superman, but even I get lonely. Uh, and eventually the guy... You know, that, that's sort of a heartfelt one where it's sort of a happy ending. The guy gets help and decides to live and all that kind of thing. And the art is really strong by Gavin Goodry. The Bunker, it's a bunker for life, so it's a wonderful life. Uh, of all people, Extraneo shows up to show Bunker what the world would be like if he wasn't there. They give Bunker a lot of credit. Like, apparently, if Bunker wasn't around, um, then the whole uh, Earth and all its heroes would be taken over by the Dominion. Um, or Dominators, rather, sorry. You know, the aliens with the big giant teeth. That's giving Bunker a lot of credit. I won't say it, not really what would happen, but kind of interesting. And there, it, it is a new uh, character design for Bunker by Andrew Drillin, which is really great. And then the Batmite story is just a Batmite story. I mean, what else can you say? So all in all, it's kind of fun. It's not my favorite DC holiday special, but yeah, it's okay. If you want some DC stories um, in the holiday vein, it might be right up your alley. Uh, any thoughts, Rocky? Uh, not not particularly. I was uh, I wasn't even all that impressed with the with the with the variant variant covers. Although cover A is probably the best cover. Uh, you know, uh, you know, we talked earlier about how this was a week with so many comics. This is exactly the type of scenario that would lead me not to buy an issue like this. Uh, because there's 17 other comics to, to choose from for DC this week. How likely am I to buy a, an 80-page giant with self-contained anthology stories? Uh, maybe, maybe there's a possibility, but I, I'm likely not to pick this up. Uh, maybe if there was just fewer, <laughs> I'd be more inclined to in the, for the holidays. But this isn't something I'd be normally be inclined to buy. However, you know, like I say, there are always feel-good stories. But, uh, you know, I've... I, I think maybe maybe I'm an older reader, but I just I like a little bit more substance, and I just can't get enough substance on these uh, these filler stories that don't really, you know, I'm 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 I'm, I'm not drawn to them quite frankly. But uh, you know, tis the season. Yeah, good point. Tis the season. Uh, all right, up next we have Batman: City of Madness number two, written and drawn by Christian Ward, letters by Hassan Otsman Elhow. Uh, what do you think of this? All right. Uh, sorry, I just uh, I wait for the uh, uh, comic to appear, so I'm a little bit behind. Uh, but uh, uh, Christian Ward continues to weave this tale of Batman, uh, essentially trying to come to terms with the fact that there is he seems to have a counterpart. There seems to be a Gotham above, and there's there's a Gotham below. So th so it, it's playing a little bit on we we've seen this play out in Batman Beyond. We've seen this play out occasionally. Different uh, different uh, similar story points and various issues of different iterations of stories of Batman where there's you know there's there's always the there's the underground tunnels of Gotham and there's uh, the we we're getting it we're getting 
shades of this with Ram V's detective comics where there's, you know, that the tunnels of Gotham form a, a framework. Got, uh, the city has a consciousness of its own, and in this case, and 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 in Christian Ward's story here, Batman City of Madness, the Court of Owls has uh, has now is try. They they warn Batman in this issue that Batman, you you have a counterpart that that existed in the Gotham below. So there's the Gotham above, which is a little bit more in the light, and then there's the Gotham below, which is like the darker version. So all the all the citizens of Gotham, including Batman himself, and all of Batman's villains have darker aspects of themselves living in a place called the Gotham you know, below, the Gotham down below. And uh, in the first issue, we were introduced to a young young man who's from Kansas who comes to Gotham City to avenge the murder of his father and ends up being a de facto sidekick to this sort of like this... Uh, this darker version of Batman that comes from the Gotham below who wants to sort of uh, use this kid to be a sidekick. And what, what's happened is that this go- this Batman from Gotham below wants to, he, he was always kept at bay and sort of caged and prevented by the court of owls from coming up and, and sort of, uh, infecting the Gotham above, because what'll happen is that the longer he's, he stays in the, uh, in the Gotham, uh, above, above is that he'll gain more power and eventually they'll uh you know chaos will reign and this negative influence it's almost like that like a dark universe infecting the normal universe it's except 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 we have a gotham above and gotham below so it's it's kind of like that uh frankly what 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 i love more looking at this and this is just looking at this digitally and the the reason why i'm picking this up physically is i i just love the art christian wards art is truly I, I love it. I love his different iterations and interpretations of the characters of Two Face. There's one in particular where Two Face's counterpart on the Gotham Below uh, normally uh, got uh, Harvey Dent's face is is uh, it's it's separated uh, vertically, while the Gotham Below Harvey uh, Two Face's his face is separated. Uh, horizontally and just the stuff like that and the way it looks visually it just it, it, it's it's really good i i'm i'm impressed i i like i like his interpretation of the ventriloquist here the ventriloquist has a darker edge to him here where he destroys he kills his he, he kills his dummy that he talks through and he ends up cutting on his hand and he he his own hand creating a carving a, a face uh into his hand to be the the puppet uh, there's really darker versions of that, and it's these darker versions of these characters that are infecting uh, the infecting the main um, the main I guess the main Gotham proper. And Batman himself is is prompted to think about his relationship to Robin and his own sidekick as this as this story progresses. And um, Nightwing is in it. Nightwing, uh, you know. Nightwing, of course, it's appropriate that Nightwing's in it. He's the he's the sidekick, the original sidekick. He was, of course, Dick Grayson, the original sidekick, the Batman. And uh, so there's there's clearly an interplay here and a juxtaposition of Batman's relationship with Nightwing versus this uh, evil Batman's relationship with this new sidekick who he's trying to convince to use lethal force to avenge his father. And um, I, I thought it's a uh, you know very well done. Very uh, the themes are very apparent as you read it. The art. Heightens the mood and tone of the story and and the feel, and 
I thought uh, I particularly like the fact that it's not overwrought with dialogue. Uh, Christian Ward is uh, very wisely, I think it's a very uh, economical use of dialogue. It's not overwrought with it, which allows the, it allows the, the, the art to really shine and it works. And uh, I'm quite enjoying this. And again, another different take on Batman that I don't really care if it's in continuity or not, similar to Gargoyle of uh, Gotham. It's just, it's nice to have these very eclectic and different versions of, of Batman in a different setting. And, and, it, and it worked for me. So what about yourself? Yeah, I mean, I echo a lot of what you said. I mean, the, the art is absolutely amazing. I mean, Christian Ward does have a tendency to use a lot of pinks and blues and purples um, in, a, in a kind of certain palette. And you sort of come to expect that from his art. So, you know, I know some people might say, well, his art always looks the same. I, you know, I disagree. It, it, it might share colors at times, uh, similar colors, but that's just his his sort of aesthetic, right? But when you, you look at the line work, when you look at the textures that are brought here, you know, I talk a lot of uh, times about doing like inks, you know, splatters or what have you and how it, it kind of muddies it and it doesn't really work. He, he's doing it here, but he's, it's almost like he's doing it with watercolor because sometimes the ink splotches are, are much larger than you normally see rather than like a little dot or whatever. It's, it's bigger, but it's almost translucent and it gives this ethereal feel. It, it gives this otherworldly feel to the story that he's telling. Now you add that to the narrative where you, as you mentioned, you got the Gotham above and you have the Gotham below and uh, you, this, you know, kind of Batman-like monster that travels between the two. And it's clear that it's not just that this city is above and this one's below. You know, you think below, you think hell, you think evil, you think dirty, you think depraved. And that's very much what it is when you look at, the obviously, the human Batman of the, the Gotham above and then the monstrous Batman of, of the Gotham below. So, you know, when you're talking about wanting to differentiate between almost a, a, a a normal, you know, everyday city of Gotham City, and then the horror of the Gotham below, where it's more of a horror setting with monsters. And, you, you know, you mentioned it yourself, the horizontal um, difference between the, the two-face uh, of the Gotham below, where, you know, it's the whole bottom half of his face is like a skull, you know, this grinning red skull. And it's, uh, it's, it's terrifying. It's horrifying. So, you know, this story wouldn't work, I don't think, anywhere near as well as it's working with somebody else doing the art uh, Christian Ward doing the art and giving us this mystical feel of the story is very, very interesting. And I, I'm just loving it. Like it's, it's really something, you know, it's not the most original idea. You know, you could look at something like uh, what Scott Snyder did in, in metal, right. With this idea of the, um, you know, the dark multiverse or what have you. Um, you know, it's not, this is not so different from that, except instead of the multiverse, it's just kind of an evil version of Gotham City or what have you. Um, but, you know, it's not exactly the same. It's not a one for one. But what really makes the story work is the artwork of Christian Ward and even the way the story structure, the dialogue, the cadence of the story, the inclusion of the Court of Owls, like the way that the, the narrative uh, part of the story is structured is lending itself to that ethereal feel as well. I mean, e even things like the vocabulary that he's using here, um, you know, the way Batman talks, the way Nightwing talks, the way Alfred talks, 
um, it's, it really just helps to set the mood because ultimately that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the artwork of Christian Ward setting a mood of, you know, kind of a, almost like a horror story. I mean, look at the name, right? City of Madness, right? It's this idea of, of madness, of horror, of, of chaos. Uh, and it's just, it's really fantastic. Uh, and I'm, I'm very impressed with what Christian Ward's doing in the story. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Wesley Dodds, The Sandman, issue number three, <laughs> written by Robert Venditti, art by Riley Rosmo, colors by Yvonne Placencia, letters by Tom Napolitano. I don't really have a whole lot to say about this uh, particular issue. This series continues to be really, really good, and this is right up there. It's maintaining the high quality and the, the fantastic work that's been done by this creative team so far. We've talked before, previous issues, how great Riley Rosmo's art is on the series. I feel like he only gets better over time. The Placentia colors are fantastic. The uh, kind of the narrative voice that Robert Venditti gives to Wesley Dodds is, is great. Uh, for the first time, we get to see the person who stole all of Wesley Dodd's um, gases and his equipment and his scientific formulas, what have you, we get to see him confront Wesley Dodd's as the Sandman, and he ends up exposing Wesley Dodd's to some of his own gases when Dodd's doesn't have his mask on. So we'll see what nightmares come from that to Dodd's. Uh, but a little bit of a transitional issue uh, as well, but absolutely fantastic. I've never been that interested in Wesley Dodd's Sandman, and I can't imagine not reading the next issue of this series. Ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. Absolutely fantastic. Perfect art, perfect colors, uh, and yeah, I'm just a huge fan of Robert Venditti. Anything he does, uh, in my mind, is worth reading uh, because he just, it's so clear that he takes care to do his research, to understand who the characters are, and he's always additive. Uh, but never disrespectful or never dismissive of anything that's come before. So just really impressed. Absolutely love uh, this series. What are your thoughts? Yeah, and uh, I, I like his relationship with his love interest, Diane Vanderlyle. And, uh, her, you know, she, she's aware of his identity and she kind of is helping him protect it. He's, uh, they're going through it, looking at the police files, investigating, of course, uh, uh, Wesley Dodd's house was burnt down. Somebody burned it down, and they stopped. But before they did so, they 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 stole all his files on all the different types of gases that he experimented on before he before he perfected his his sleeping gas. He of course created some gases that were very lethal and that could be used for war. And this this darker version of of the Sandman, uh, you know, ultimately he ends up meeting him here and. It's, uh, you know, it's literally a, 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 a battle of the Sandman, so to speak. And it's, uh, it, it ends up that they both end up getting exposed to each other's gases. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly how lethal the gas is that Wesley end up in, ends up inhaling here. But it's suggested that next issue he's going to have, he's going to suffer the ill effects of the gas attack and the battle that he had with this sort of like the evil Sandman. Uh, and I don't know. Did you catch? Does the, does this evil Sandman have a name yet? Does it? Have, you know, I didn't. I, I don't know. I didn't recall see. Yeah, I didn't recall seeing one. Yeah. Um, so if if anyone in the if anyone wants to leave a comment, if they know what this evil Sandman's name is, please uh, let us know. I'm not sure. Uh, he looks. You know, I, I kind of I actually like the look of this evil Sandman better than Hart Wesley Dodd Sandman because I like the darker colors. You know, just because I, I think it looks a little bit more cool. But uh, no, I, I thought this works very well. I'm I'm actually really curious to know who it is, and I'm wondering if this evil Sandman is it going to be a brand new character? 
is is uh, writer Robert Venditti is he in, is he going to be additive to the the mythology of Sandman by uh, adding somebody new to the mythology? This does take place in the 1940s. We know that uh, with respect to with uh, with what Jeremy Adams is doing on Jay Garrick Flash, Jay Garrick's adventures take place in the modern day. We got Alan Scott, uh, Tim Sherry telling Alan Scott's stories in in the 1940s and and the present. It's interesting that Robert Venditti is sort of staying in the past, and I kind of like that because I, I wouldn't mind seeing a, in, in this a Sandman stories Robert Venditti. I think is I think I, I like it. He see he seems very comfortable writing Sandman stories and I would like to see him uh, tell some more, even have some JSA guest stars, uh, which he, he had Wildcat show up last issue in his, uh, in his uh, secret identity. I'd, I'd like to see more JSA adventures, uh, JSA characters show up in Sandman, but keep it a Sandman comic. Cause I, I really like this so far and uh, I'm not sure if this is just a mini series or whatever it is, but I, I'm enjoying this and I'm really curious to see how this is going to, this first story arc is going to wrap up if it is, if it is an ongoing series, but even if it isn't, I'll, I'll be happy to take what we can get. Yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure it's a limited series. Um, I, I kind of wonder if the evil Sandman isn't in some way related to Wheeler uh, Vanderlyle, who's you know supposedly is uh, was a friend of Wesley Dodd's father and is uh, you know supposed to be a, kind of a mentor figure if if he actually knows that Wesley Dodd's a Sandman or what have you. But yeah, five issues is uh, is the length of the series, so it is a mini. But yeah, like you said, it's uh, it's just been very very entertaining. Uh, so. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Detective Comics number one thousand seventy-nine, written by Rom V, Jason Sean Alexander, with Liam Sharp on art, Dave Stewart on colors, Ariana Mare on letters. It turns out everything you thought you knew about what Catwoman was doing and the heist and the way to save Bruce Wayne was all a fake out, and really, they were all the distraction to actually get the Orgrams to kill Bruce Wayne, supposedly, or you know, to make them think that they had hung Batman. And then when they rush his body off uh, to actually steal his body, we find out that when Catwoman went and visited Bruce Wayne uh, the night before that she gave him a little concoction that Poison Ivy had created to simulate death and they steal his body and they're going to try to smuggle him out of the city while all the chaos ensues uh, and what the end game of the Orgums will be. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, so I enjoyed that very much in keeping with a heist feel, but, also in keeping with who Catwoman is, the fact that it was a double cross all along. Um, I haven't been the biggest fan of the Jason Sean Alexander art because it's not as clean as a style as I would like to see. And I've even seen him do a style that's much cleaner. But this is very muddy and um, and kind of um, textured. And I, I'm just not that that big of a style uh, a big big of a fan of it. So, uh, But it seems like the story's coming to a head. I'm very curious to see you know, this sprawling story that Ramvi's telling how it's all going to play out uh, in the end, I, I guess we'll have to see. And there is a backup story as well, which uh, is a flashback to the Orgums coming to, uh, to Gotham city, um, which I didn't really feel like added that much, um, but it very much felt like a Dan water story. And he is the one that writes it. Uh, Juan Ferrer handles the art and colors with Steve wants on, uh, on letters. So what are your thoughts on uh, detective? You know, it's funny, this entire detective series, Ram V from, you know, it started off 
uh, it started off, there were issues where uh, I, I, I really appreciated, I, I enjoyed how Ramvi started his Detective Comics run. And then it got very, very in-depth. It got very deep and a little bit esoteric in parts. And, and then there was backups that lost me a little bit. Uh, but I have to say that I'm relieved to see that it's ending on a, on a bang here. It's, 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 I'm enjoying these latter issues all the more. And I, I'm actually, I feel like I'm being rewarded for reading those issues two, sometimes three times <laughs> and, and taking the notes that I did because there is a lot of substance to this, this story. And, and I appreciate all the times, even my confusion on some of the backups of which you, you helped explain to me. <laughs> I, I actually appreciate it because I do feel that Ram V has put in a lot of work to these stories. Could there be more clarity in parts? Yes. Can I be more constructively critical? Yes. But at the end of the day here, I really love, uh, I, I love all these moments that are happening, I, whether it's Azrael battling the wolf guy, whether it's uh, Leon and uh, Cheshire battling in the, in the, in the pits and in the, uh, of Gotham, whether it's uh, Selena reminding the readers and thank you, Ram V. We all, people forget that Ram V's Catwoman run was, was, we loved his, most of us really enjoyed his Catwoman run and, uh, and, uh, to, to, you know, Cat, Ram V reminding us that Catwoman is a thief. And so of course she would steal Batman's corpse. <laughs> and so I thought that was just, it really was beautiful. And, and Cat, and I, I actually really loved the use of the poker metaphor about playing a bluff and, and that Selena's really good at this. This is Selena's wheelhouse. You want to get Batman out of a jam. I mean, Selena knows what she's doing and we even, and those of us who pride ourselves on thinking we know the character Catwoman, Ramvi knows Catwoman just as well as we do. And I was still, I got to admit, I, I got to admit, I, I, I can't, you know, I, I feel like a fool saying this now, but I, she got me. I, I thought, I didn't think, I, I, I didn't see it coming and I, I don't, okay, maybe I'm in the minority. Okay. But it happens, but. I, I enjoyed this. I was like, oh, geez. And I felt like I do watch an Ocean's Eleven or something. It's like, oh, well, you know, you thought that they were caught and you thought that this was all, you know, they're due now. Well, guess what? No. What I thought I saw was wrong. And I loved how it played it back. And it was so well done. And I really, really enjoyed it. And, um, and the other thing I want to comment on are the covers. The covers of Detective Comics. I love the cover A's. Uh, I, and I... I'm, I'm rewarded, I feel, for just buying the cover A's of the Detective Comics run because the cover A's have a very unique artistic style in all the covers, and they look absolutely beautiful. Yeah. They look absolutely beautiful uh, side by side when I when I take them out and I look them all bagged and boarded. They look fantastic. So, you know, I, I feel uh, I feel like this is really coming to a close, and I and I'm genuinely I'm really I don't know how this is going to end. You know, what's going to happen to the Orgums? You know. Are they all going to be wiped out? Uh, they still seem very powerful. It's still not clear to me that Batman can win. Uh, I, I found it a little odd that if I was really going to be nitpicky here, they hung Batman and Selina was hoping that, that Batman's neck muscles would prevent him from dying and that and that he wouldn't actually, his neck wouldn't be snapped because his neck wouldn't, because Batman is just inherently too strong neck wouldn't snap and she had previously injected him when she kissed him last issue and, and snuck into a cell and injected him with something that poison ivy gave her but that somehow you know it wouldn't weaken his neck and so that was a huge chance that selena was taking i don't you know i thought that ramvi was being a little bit sneaky with that i don't know if i quite buy that explanation but i'm gonna buy it because i just love the way 
I, I just like the way that this story is told. And I, again, I, I feel rewarded for the journey that I've been on with Ram V. And I've, I've, I've you know, this is uh, definitely one of, uh, again, one, one of the better comics this week, in my opinion. Yeah, it's been a wild ride. And uh, again, I'm curious to see how it all plays out. And the other thing I'm curious about, you know, I mentioned Court of Owls, right? That's the, the, the a concept that's huge. It's been added to Gotham City and other writers have picked it up and run with it. It's a big concept. The Orgums are a big concept as well. It'll be I'll be interested to see if anybody picks them up and uses them later on the way the Court of Owls has been used. So we'll have to wait and see. Uh, okay, up next, we have the final issue of Danger Street from writer Tom King, Jorge Fornes on art, Dave Stewart on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. We've loved this series uh, since the beginning. How do you think it all, all turned out in the end? Uh, I got to say that I... Uh, it the, well, you know what? Uh, <laughs> true to form, if you've been, this was actually. I won't say it's predictable because I didn't. I I can't say I I predicted how it. I I knew for certain how it was all going to end, but I did think it was going to be a happy ending, and that was because of the manner in which this whole thing has been told like a fairy tale. Narratively, that's exactly how. Tom King has been telling this story uh, that th this entire uh, this entire story has been narrated by Doctor Fate's helmet. The helmet of Naboo is telling the story, and he's and each character is either a prince or a princess or a rogue or uh, you know it's always using terms of, of mythology, terms of fairy tales, and it uh, and so is it any is it any surprise that this ends with every living happily ever after uh, and what and how everything sort of comes into play because it, the, the central conceit that that between the uh, the green team the evil green team and the outsiders is that way back when they were both young both the outsiders and the, the green team were attending the same school and it was somebody who had the helmet of fate that essentially had them play a game and the green team ended up becoming billionaires. They got that reward and the outsiders were sort of cursed by being sort of like mutant looking humans essentially. And, and now that all of the, everything comes into, comes into to play here at the end. And there was a lot to wrap up because warlord was dead uh, and he was lying on the ground. Creeper was shot. And so all, all this coming into play, lady cop having the helmet of fate, so, you know, a warlord comes back to life and a creeper is back amongst the living. But now what they need to do is they Atlas, who was killed, who is holding up the world. Somebody's got to replace Atlas because they can't resurrect Atlas. So what do they do? It's uh, uh, John uh, Goodlooks, a member of uh, a member of that kid of the D Dingbats of Danger Street. Goodlooks has to be the one that holds up the world. And I thought. What a wonderful way to sort of end this. And I just, I love the idea that this, this, this group of kids who just hang out and they love each other, you know, uh, they, they're the ones that end up having to save the day. And even Lady Cop's aversion to Superman, you know, grounded in a trauma that she had when she was attacked, when she was a younger woman and, and, you know, needing to be helped but never and she wasn't saved by a superhero and she experienced a trauma lady cop herself uh, you know taking it upon herself to stand up to gods and at one point even at the end when she's facing the the dr fate you know and dr fate sort of laughs at her laughs at her when she points a gun at him and he says <laughs> i'm a god basically telling her i'm a god honey and she's like 
you know, I've, I, I, I got no problem with shooting a god. I mean, she's, I mean, good Lord. Um, she certainly set up to quite a, to, to quite a few uh, menaces here and, and heroes. Uh, and the interactions with the, the, you know, the green team got their comeuppance and uh, Metamorpho gets his arm back. And, <laughs> and the way everything is resolved and even, or, even Orion, the son of Darkseid, wearing that Darkseid is shirt. You know, he's played out to be the alcoholic that he is. His interactions with the Creeper and how the Creeper sort of has sort of a redemptive arc. The Creeper feels bad that he's not able to save the Dingbats. But the way the Dingbats come together at the end to, to, to go with good looks and they join good looks in, in going through the mother box, which is empowered by Starman to allow them to be the ones that essentially hold up and save the world. This, these, the dingbats of Danger Street are the true heroes that ultimately save the entire world and end up, uh, you know, replacing Atlas and holding up the world. And what I love about that is they refer back to that those seventies in those first edition, you know, first issue classics at DC that everyone shuns those issues. They're in dollar bins everywhere, even after. Time. For those characters to, to get this kind of tribute and send off, especially the Dingbacks of Danger Street, on the beautiful A cover, where a fantastic cover uh, showing them all, all of those characters and all their glory. Uh, I just thought this was a great way to end the series. And that uh, Lady Cop herself expressing some frustration to Doctor Fate at the end, and and just how just the. Just, you know, why do good things happen to bad people? What we just do, we don't know the answer to those questions. And that's ultimately the message here. And sometimes fairy tales happen. And sometimes, uh, you know, all you can do is just uh, sit back and relax and enjoy any story that begins with the, those wonderful words, once upon a time. So uh, I love this. I love this uh, series. And Tom King, uh, you know, I, I think anybody should... Uh, you know, pick this up and enjoy it because it's self-contained, it's enjoyable, it's 12 issues long, and I think you're going to get a lot of bang for your buck when this inevitably comes out as a, as a trade. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, having it narrated by the, the helmet of fate itself, which is, you know, you talk about this being a fairy tale, it's a you know, magical, very mythical artifact, and having the, the helmet of fate not only narrate it, but be such an important part of the story, it just makes sense, right? Like, if, if anything can be behind taking all these disparate ideas of, you know, Lady Cop, Dingbacks of Danger Street, Green Team, uh, this version of Starman, Warlord, uh, you know, and Atlas and making them all make sense together in the same story, Manhunter, Codename Assassin, whatever. It's going to have to be Metamorpho. Uh, it's going to have to be brought together by something magical, something uh, like the Helmet of Fate. And if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see the final cover, the final main cover um, of Dingbats of Danger Street, which is so perfectly drawn by Jorge Fornes, right? Like it's all the disparate characters, but the by far the biggest thing that dominates the cover right there in the center, everybody's sort of hanging off of it, is the Helmet of Fate. It just makes so much fun. Uh, it, it, this series has been absolutely fantastic. Right from the start, we were impressed with the way Tom King took all these characters, which seemingly don't go together, and made them all work. But the other thing that makes it work other than just the story structure and, and it making sense narratively is the strength of lady cop as a character, right? You mentioned it yourself at the end when the chaos God confronts her and says, Hey, I'm a God. And she's, she almost looks at the guy like, I don't fucking care. 
So what, you think I can't handle gods? I haven't handled gods before. Like she's just <laughs> in the hands of Tom King. She's just such a character. Never would I have thought I have that of all of the, the first issue specials that I, that I don't have the one that I do have. And I don't even know where I got it from. I have the lady cop. I have the orange, that orange cover, the blue logo, whatever. I have the lady cop. I've never read it. It's just in a box somewhere. Uh, again, I have no idea where it came from, uh, but that's the one I have. And never would I have thought, yeah, I, I want to see, like when the story ended, when I finished reading the issue, I was like, man, I hope I see more Lady Cop at some point somewhere, right? She's such a hard character, obviously, to bring into continuity. Uh, but yeah, I would want to see more Lady Cop. And then, uh, yeah, the happy ending, it coming full circle. I mean, at the end, Lady Cop's writing a ticket to another group of kids, on Danger Street, that are writing an ATV's assignments of a group of those girls. Are the outsiders, yeah, those are the outsiders. Yeah, yeah, with the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's just again, it's so much fun. Highly recommend it. Uh, I can't wait to read it again myself um, in kind of a one sitting situation with, um, you know, with all the issues now that all the issues are out. But um, one of the you know the only the only disappointment that I have as a reader is even when I read it collected, I've read it before. I know what's coming. Uh, so this is one of those series where that anybody that hasn't read it uh, and is going to sit down and read the collected edition, I'm a little bit envious that you're going to get to experience it for the first time in that way. Um, because again, it's just one of those series that just needs to be read and appreciated for what it is. Absolutely uh, amazing. Curious to see what Tom King and Jorge Fornes are going to do uh, together up next. I guess we'll see. Uh, all right. Last book we're going to talk about in detail. Speed Force number two, written by Jarrett Williams, art by Danielle DiNiculo and Francisco Mortarino. Colors by Andrew Dahlhaus, letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, dare I ask what you thought of this, Rocky? Well, <laughs> well you read my mind. Uh, honestly, uh I actually had uh, I actually had a mini rant planned for this, uh, and I thought to myself, uh, "This is going to sound overly harsh, but I'm 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 currently contemplating. I'm putting together my top my top ten lists for 2023, and I'm contemplating whether or not I, I don't like being negative, so I I I'm inclined not to do a top ten worst DC comics for 2023 because I want to stay positive, but I got to be honest." Uh, the first issue of Speed Force and this one would probably be in the top 10 list of one of the most point. There are so many things wrong with these first two issues that um, I, I honestly, uh, I actually, I'm hesitant to say too much because I, I don't want to be too negative other than to say this. So I'm going I'm to actually try to be positive and just say, I think that the art's not my cup of tea, but the art's not bad. I don't mind the, uh, the art by artist Daniel Dean, uh, Francisco Madarino. It's got sort of a manga feel to it. Um, it's it's actually surprisingly detailed in parts. I think uh, artistically they're very challenged. They're very creative with wh what they can squeeze on the panel. Uh, what what throws me off is the writing. I, I think that there's it's there's far too much dialogue in, in in this issues. Far too much dialogue. It's way too wordy. There's way too much exposition. The, the writer try, attempt what the writer attempts to do writer uh, Jarrett Williams does is uh, on the one hand he's I think Jarrett Williams has got so much story and dialogue he wants that he has in his head that he wants to tell that I think if this was a movie and all these people were talking like this maybe this would be very a uh, very comedic cartoon but it's very I find it very, I found it very jarring to read and and I found it really eclectic because it 
Mr. Mr. Terrific and the Speedsters, along with Connor Kent and the bouncing boy from Teen Titans, whose name I forget, uh, <laughs> they're they're investigating the disappearance of a bunch of lab technicians from various labs around the globe. And they might all be dead. They don't know. They don't know where these people have gone. They might all have been killed. And yet everyone's joking around. Everyone's there. They're, Mr. Terrific is more concerned about being on an app and joining and, and joining a social media. And and everyone's joking around and being all happy, go lucky. And 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 and, and such an eclectic. I, I found it very jarring on the one hand. We're supposed to be laughing and and, and, and joyful and, and 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 everyone has all this good rapport, but they're investigating these really dark events, and they then they want to chase these these Mexican speedsters that resonate with the same frequency as the energy source they picked up when these lab techs disappeared, and it just feels very jarring to me, and I I personally feel uh, I was able maybe to piece together kind of what happened. There's a strong side of me that thinks that new readers here are going to be completely lost. Uh, there's no reminder in this issue as to what's going on. Nowhere in this issue does somebody, despite the incredible amount of dialogue, does anybody turn to the person next to them and, and ask, WTF are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing? Why are we doing what we're doing? In between all the in jokes and the side and the and the pop culture references and the talk of video games and everything, I mean, Jared, you know, the the writer is impressing us with all his knowledge of pop culture, but forgot to remind the readers why everybody in this comic is moving around and where exactly are they going and why. So that's my miniature rant. I, I, uh, this this is not my cup of tea, but I I do like the cover. Cover A is pretty cool, and artistically, I think the art the art is up to task, but it's too wordy, and I think that the the the, the plot needs to be more focused. But that's my mini rant. So, what do you think? Yeah, not too bad. Yeah, Roundhouse is his name. Roundhouse, thank you. Kind of a dorky character, almost like a hey. People love Bouncing Boy from Legion of Superheroes. Let's create a teen version of him and throw him back. I think it was when Tomasi did the Teen Titans, but I could be wrong about that. Yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, I mean, the first issue. I, so I thought this was better than the first issue. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's a very low bar. And the first issue, you know, very choppy, jumping around. Hey, something's wrong with the Speed Force. Oh, my God, we haven't seen that story before, right? And the big reveal at the end with who the villains are. And then we get none of the villains. We get none of the the the... the the music executive mustache twirling villain until the very end. Like, yeah, you need those, need, they need to be explored. Instead, we ju you know, jump over to, to Mr. Terrific and the social media stuff, like you were talking about. A roundhouse shows up, and meeting at one point, we can say 10 minutes later, and then I'm like, wait, wait what's going on? Like, it just, it, felt, it just felt so choppy. You're right about it being unnecessarily wordy. Uh, it's hard to follow what's going on all these different characters thrown into it. Like it just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense narratively. Like it, it needs to be more focused. It's trying to do too many things. And so it's not succeeding at any one thing. It, it tries to be funny, but it's trying to be serious. It's trying to be science fiction-y. It, it's trying to be too many things. It needs to be more focused. Just try to do one thing and do that well, instead of trying to do all these things and not doing any of them particularly well. You're right about the art. Um, that it's very strong in terms of uh, storytelling. It's not my particular style either. Um, I know when uh, 
this artist teamed up with Tom Taylor on the, I think it was a boom series, um, seven secrets that, that was done very, very well. The art felt a little more focused there as well here. It feels a little unfocused, kind of like the story itself. So I don't know, maybe it's supposed to look that way because the story is so unfocused. I, I'm just not really sure, but yeah, this is not something that I could, I could recommend. It's a bit of a chore to read. Um, and I do have a feeling that once we have the context of, of the whole story and you went back and read it, read it all together, it probably make more sense, but I'm not reading this more than once. Uh, it's kind of a chore to get through the first time because it can, yeah, so unnecessarily wordy. And you just wonder, like, I'm not familiar with this writer at all. Just wonder if this is their first work and they, they just haven't learned that economy of language that you need for, um, for comics, you know, let the, let the words do some of the heavy lifting. You don't have to, you know, explain every little thing, uh, in dialogue, you can uh, kind of let the, you know, let the art do some of the, the heavy lifting. So, yeah. uh, anyway, in terms of, uh, we got one more Batman, li uh, Robin lives. Yeah. You know, I, I really was uh, curious to know your thoughts on that. I don't, I mean, okay. This is a comic I read way back when Batman 428, again, in the back of 427, there was a one 900 number. You called one number. If you wanted, uh, Jason Todd to live, and you call the other number if you want him to die. Readers voted for him to die. I'm st that still surprises me to this day. Uh, I think it was like 50 cents a call back in you know, whatever it was, 1987. I made the call. I voted for him to die. I hated Jason Todd. I hated Jason Todd. Uh, yeah. So you were, yeah. I, I literally think the vote was, it was within five votes. And, I and didn't my, vote. And, and my parents paid the 50 cents. I didn't care. <laughs> yeah. And I, who knows how many, how many people called multiple times. But anyway, he did die. Uh, but they obviously, hey, he could have lived, so they had the art commissioned. If you compare this to the issue that was actually printed, there's only one page that's different. The rest of the story is exactly the same. So, um, it, I, I don't, again, I don't know why Daisy's putting this out now. Was there a big uh, fan outcry to have it? I don't think there was. Um, so, I don't really have much to say. I, I am, I'm still surprised that DC did this. But man, it's legendary in you know in comics history. Uh, so for that reason, I'm glad it exists. Did they this need to be printed when it's just one page difference? I don't know. I mean, probably not. But DC's milking it for all it's worth. They, they're even so they're releasing this. You can even get the uh, variant edition where it's a foil cover uh, if you so choose. But I mean, I'm not going to review a, a comic from whatever it is, 1980. 88, I think that it was, and it first came out, uh, and because the aesthetic is totally different than now. But I will say, Jim Starlin wrote it. He's a legendary creator. Jim Aparo, to me, is the Batman artist because you know he's the Batman artist that I knew that when I first started reading Batman. Because um, this was not too long after I started buying Batman on a regular basis. I wasn't a regular Batman reader. I dip in here or there. Um, but then I remember getting Batman 401 because I think it was like a millennium, that millennium event tie-in, a terrible millennium event. Uh, and then I, I kept buying Batman after that, which is exactly why they used to do the tie-ins back in the day and tie them into regular series because they were hoping they could get you hooked on it. And yeah, I love the Jim Aparo art and I just kept buying Batman after that. Um, so th yeah, this wasn't so that long after I started picking it up on a regular basis. And yeah, I was shocked. I was shocked that they, I didn't call. 
Um, but I didn't really know. I didn't, ha- there wasn't a comic store in my town. I bought my stuff at a convenience store. Um, so I didn't really have a sense, you know, it wasn't like today where you can get on social media, you can get, you can talk to other comic fans, even if you don't know any personally and you can get a sense, Oh, people don't like this character or people love this character. I had no idea that everybody hated Jason Todd. I didn't particularly care for him either, but I had no idea the level of hate was out there the way that it was. Um, so yeah, uh, I don't really have much else to add other than that, but what are your thoughts on it? Well, it's funny that uh, I think the, the the appearance of the Ayatollah Khomeini or whatever I think really heightened this issue back in the day. Uh, one of the things that stood out for me, aside from the page, obviously, where Batman just says he's alive, he's alive, is it it, it was shocking to me how he, even though I know he was going to be alive in this issue because that's the central conceit of the entire issue, it didn't make sense that he was alive because his, his own mother, who's killed, said, you know, Jason protected me from the blast. He's such a great son. Uh and yet he's he manages to be alive, and so right away I didn't believe it. Uh, but yet, of course, that's the central conceit. I, I actually noticed the writing. Uh, if I was being critical of the writing, it is. Uh, I expect a high qual. I, I I would expect if this type of bat story was written today, I would expect a better written story. I didn't think it was written very well. It reminded me of the style of writing back then. With all apologies to Jim Starlin. Uh, it, that's you know this was a classic take. This was the same issue in all but one page, really, not not significantly different at all. Uh, it doesn't read as well as today's Batman, quite frankly. And a lot of the a lot of the Batman stories that you and I criticize are written better than this. Uh, so, you know, this is one example where I it, this this is a, a prime example of what I, I wonder, you know. So many of us, you know, I do I do it once in a while too. I talk pretty cocky sometimes, talking about oh, you know, I wish. They're written like it was in the past, and I speak nostalgically about how great writing was in the past. And now it's like, ah, I don't know. Uh, the writers we have today are much better, I think, than we give them credit for, especially if we're going to use this issue as the metric here. And I don't say that to be a, a jerk, I just say that to be honest. Uh, I think maybe sometimes we need to appreciate the writers that we have in our own in present time and that they're maybe a little bit better than we give them credit for at times. So it's sort of like uh, it's this was a nice reminder of that, that maybe I shouldn't uh, rant so much on some issues. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a little bit, you know, it was a different audience back then. Um, so the writing wasn't as sophisticated and you're a little more spoon fed because I think if they were aimed at, at younger readers. I think that's a part of it. So uh, anyway. As far as collections that are coming out today, uh, let me adjust my filters here. Uh, so we have Nightwing Volume 4, the Leap hardcover. Uh, that's the uh, the Tom Taylor run. And this particular hardcover collects issues 97 through 100, as well as the 2022 annual. Then you have Dark Knights of Steel, also Tom Taylor. Uh, it's Volume 2, so it collects issues 7 through 12. You have a Young Justice uh, uh, omnibus volume one hardcover. So that collects uh, issues uh, from Young Justice one through 19, and then a bunch of other tie in issues that are in that same era. So that's the Todd Nock, uh, Peter David era of, uh, of Young Justice. You've got uh, Batman Gotham After Midnight deluxe hardcover, which collects the Gotham After Midnight uh, series one through 12. Uh, you also have. Uh, Multiversity Harley screws up the DCU hardcover, which is the Frank Thierry series. There's a new version of Watchmen. It's an absolute hardcover edition. You've got a hardcover of Infinite Crisis. And then the Superman 78 series from Robert Venditti uh, that 
a sequel to that has is coming out currently. But the first uh, Superman 78 with uh, art by Wilfredo Torres has a hardcover that's out this week uh, as well. So a lot of books to choose from, Rocky. Uh, can you narrow it down to one for your book of the week? Uh, yes, I can. And I suspect uh, we might end up with the same one here, but uh, maybe not. But I'm going to have to go with uh, Danger Street uh, because I just think that, uh, again, I just, I, I really loved, I love the happy ending. Uh, the, the whole story was, the whole series was told essentially like a glorified fairy tale. And uh, I did have, there was one issue that, that all fight issue between the Manhunter and uh, the codename Assassin that I, I thought was a little bit of a miss. But uh, I could understand from a fairy tale point of view, having the two knights battle each other, I could understand it given the concept of how Tom King narratively approached the series. So even when, when there was a miss for me, it was still done in a manner in which I find uh, I could understand and appreciate and respect. And so uh, definitely my pick of the week. And uh, yeah, it, 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 you know, most of the comics this week were a miss for me, but, uh, but this one uh, was uh, the cherry on top. Yeah, I don't know that I'd go so far as to say most of the comics were uh, a miss for me. I thought Batman and Robin 4 was good. I enjoyed Outsiders. I know you didn't enjoy it as much as I did. The the Santa Claus Silent Night series been, has been good. The second issue of Batman Gargoyle uh, of Gotham was very good. I thought Action Comics was good. I enjoyed Beast World, Superman Lost for its you know little foibles here or there I thought was good. Um, so yeah, overall, uh, Batman City of Madness, very good. Wesley Dodds, very good. So, uh, and one thing we didn't one. talk about, you can only pick one. Yeah, I know. Uh, we also, I didn't mention the uh, Birds of Prey Uncovered, number one. Uh, we didn't talk about that, but that's just basically a, a collection of Birds of Prey variants. So if you're a fan of that, also, I thought Green Lantern was great. And so was uh, Detective Comics, but ultimately at the end of the day, I can only pick one and it can't be anything but Danger Street. Uh, for all the reasons you said, uh, and, and the reasons we talked about when we talked about it in detail, um, just what a pleasure, what fun, what a great, uh, technically well put together comic, gorgeous art, gorgeous cover, gorgeous colors, consistent. Um, and I, I enjoyed it throughout that, that issue that you didn't enjoy as much with the, um, with the Manhunter and Codename Assassin going against each other was actually one of my favorite. I thought it was brilliant what King did there. So, yeah, I mean, this this is a series that made me a fan of Lady Cop. How could it not be my, uh, my pick of the <laughs> yeah. week? Talk about nailing uh, the landing, right? Um, we had some other things that uh, ended on a whimper. Um, this ended on a high note. So uh, so that's my pick. Uh, appreciate you all joining us as always. Apologies for being so long, but a ton of books to talk about this week as always. Hopefully it slows down in the upcoming weeks. Um Want to wish everybody happy holidays, Merry Christmas. Uh, we appreciate the support. Uh, anything to add, Rocky? Uh, yeah, uh, just a happy holidays to everyone. Uh, get out there, get your Christmas shopping done. Uh, don't be like me and wait to, to the last minute. And uh, yeah, uh, and also, you know, when Jason and I are bitching about, uh, this is called a first world problem. When we are complaining about too many DC comics in a week, that is a wonderful problem to have. We're yeah. just fishing about it because we got to read them all for you guys. So, but but make no mistake, you're 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 at least going to have uh, lots of choices when you go to your local comic shop and go to your local comic shop and support them over the Christmas holidays and merry uh, happy holidays to everyone. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. Echo that sentiment. Support your local comic shop. Go buy uh, some gifts there. 
uh, for sure. So if you're checking us out uh, on YouTube, don't forget to go to wherever you get your podcast from. Do a search for the comic source and subscribe so you can check out all our other audio only content. If you're listening to us audio only, you want to be sure to subscribe to Rocky's channel. Just go to YouTube, comic space, boom, exclamation point, subscribe, ring the notification bell, leave some comments below. Let us know which books you loved, which books you didn't uh, like as much. We appreciate the uh, engagement there on YouTube. So thanks for joining us, everybody. And we'll talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes, as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.